Hey, Aaron, you can go ahead and kick things off, buddy. I made you a speaker. Oh, hello, Joy. What's on your mind? Um, I just wanted to start off by saying that I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, I'm quite you. young. You should set you should set your standards higher, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually quite young. I'm still in high school. I'm 16. Well, actually, I'm 15. I'll be 16 in March. And Great. Good for you. All the stuff that's going around with uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, CBDCs. Um, what is what is what is exactly? I just really want to know what is it. How does it directly impact crypto? Because although I don't own any crypto, crypto myself, I want to look forward into that. Not to invest, but more to use it as a like as a currency. And I don't want to say this like I'm a criminal, but more to like avoid the IRS because I heard that crypto. Uh, well, I know that crypto um, is more private. Where am I crazy? Okay. Well, I, I, I can't speak to the IRS and all that. I mean, that's for accountants and whatnot. Obviously, I would I would never encourage anyone to do anything that was even slightly illegal. But what I, what I will do is focus on the part of your question when you're talking about how this will impact cryptocurrency or how it may impact just everyday life. And what I would encourage you to do, Aaron, is start the process by understanding what money is. Now, this is a this sounds like an easy question or an easy easy topic. Correct. It's actually incredibly complex. And now, when I'm saying when I'm referring to money, I'm not talking about my good buddy Mike Maloney's definition. You know, which I would say is the proper definition of money. I'm just using that term loosely to describe dollar bills or, or dollars, not just dollar bills, but dollars, really more more specifically. So. You know, because this is what the average Joe and Jane view as money, just dollars. But what is right. that, right? We, I think 99.99999% of people still have this. They know that money isn't physical, but they still right. have this idea that when you deposit your paycheck in the bank, you are giving them something. And then the bank is holding that something for you. And then the bank will take that something and then they will maybe lend it out to someone else. Maybe they'll keep 10% of it as a reserve. And then that something that you gave the bank, now all of a sudden the bank gives that to someone else. And then maybe there's not enough stuff in the system. And then the Federal Reserve comes in and they print more of the stuff and we know that's can lead to inflation and all these things. This is what most people's view of money is. <laughs> now, I would strongly encourage you to assume for a moment that it's completely inaccurate. So, okay. what money is, is simply a ledger. It's just a network of ledgers. And all money is, from the standpoint of the general public or from the standpoint of the banking system, is an entry in the ledger. All it is is a number. So let's take this to the next step here. What's the difference between a euro and a dollar? Nothing. Absolutely well, nothing. Zero. Well, All it is is a, it's, a, it's a ledger that, let's say, Aaron, you've got 100 euros and you've got $100. Well, the only okay. thing that's different is that ledger, wherever that's being held, 
says that you have a hundred dollars and that you have a hundred euros and then everyone that's involved in that network agrees the ledger is correct and it matches up with all the other networks ledgers and if those ledgers match up then you have the hundred dollars or hundred euros that you can spend accordingly and in your mind you actually have those physical euros you, know, you can go down to the bank and withdraw them if you really want to but you have money but in reality it all it is is an entry in a ledger just like a number is an entry in an excel spreadsheet so why does this matter because when people think about the introduction of a cbdc they view it as something completely different than what we have today now i agree life will change it will give the central planners and the authoritarians far more control. But it doesn't necessarily mean that money itself changes at all. At all. The only thing that really changes is the software that is used with the ledger and the potential consolidation of the network of ledgers on a retail standpoint. From a retail standpoint, I'll get to this in a moment but a consolidation of those ledgers to one ledger that would then be the Fed balance sheet. But to think that a, a, like a Fed coin is somehow different than a dollar, that, that's, that, that's not the case. Because at the end of the day, Aaron, I, I mean, and I know this may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but I, I'm actually not. This is important, very, very important to differentiate between the two and how the system really functions so you can determine how this may play out in the future, or you can determine, or you can really determine the probabilities of inflation, deflation, disinflation from all of these events occurring. And so what I, I really would encourage you, especially at 15 years old, if you can get your head around this, this is going to give you a huge edge. There is no money, Aaron. Okay. Money, money does not exist. There, no, there's no dollars, there's no euro, there's no yen, there's no one. There, there's, there's, in fact, I would go so far as to say financial instruments don't exist. Like as an example, I'd love for you to take a picture of a mortgage-backed security and send it to me. All right. You can't. Why? Because all it is, is just an entry in a ledger. All a mortgage-backed security is, is just the network of ledgers agreeing that you own the rights to XYZ mortgage or the, the cash flow from XYZ mortgage. So if there's no money that exists, now granted cash exists, but I'm excluding cash for the moment, just excluding cash for the moment. Okay. So outside of cash, if no money exists, how can a central bank digital currency change money? It doesn't exist in the first place. The only thing that exists is the ledger or the network of ledgers. So that's what you have to ask. Okay, so how does that ledger change? And I think the only way it changes is just the software and the consolidation of that ledger and the point of sale. So right now, Aaron, if you, do you have a, a well, you don't have to tell me, but let's say that you have a bank account with Wells Fargo. Are, are you in the States? You sound like you're in the States. Yes. Okay, so you, you've seen Wells Fargo's, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So if you're with Wells Fargo and, and you let's say go down to the cheesecake factory and let's say you spend 20 bucks at the cheesecake factory for a salad or whatever. 
on your bank statement with Wells Fargo, you're going to see that transaction and it will likely say Cheesecake Factory. It'll say the date and Cheesecake Factory. And then it'll say minus $20. So what you can do with Wells Fargo is you can say, okay, Wells Fargo, please organize my expenses. Almost like a kind of a, a, a quasi version of what, what you would do in QuickBooks. And so Wells Fargo will take their software and say, okay, well, Cheesecake Factory, the software knows that that's a restaurant. So they will automatically put that in the category of food. So if all of these ledgers, the retail ledgers, get consolidated to the Fed's ledger, which is basically the Fed's balance sheet, that means, Aaron, you have an account with the Fed. They're going to see that in real time. Right now, we kind of a decentralized, to a certain degree, uh, ledger system with all these commercial banks. But when all those go to the Fed, they can see every single transaction in real time. So it's not like the money has been programmed. It's just that the ledger itself is, um, is, is it, each action or transaction on the ledger system is... Uh, uh, the, the, the Fed and the central planners can follow it far easier because it's consolidated, it's traceable. That's probably the best way to say it. So the, the way the software would have to change uh, upon a sale would that information that now goes to the central planner, the Fed, couldn't just say Cheesecake Factory because they already have that information. And if they truly want to use this to micromanage your life, which I think they do, it would have to not only say Cheesecake Factory, but it would also say Salad. You say both. And then if you bought a steak, let's say you spent 40 bucks or whatever, it would say you bought a salad and a steak. So the software at the point of sale would have to change, and that would have to be integrated into this consolidated ledger that the Fed now has on the balance sheet where all the retail liabilities, i.e. your bank account with Wells Fargo, moves over to the Federal Reserve. So it's, it's not a change of money. It's not a programmable money. It's a change in the way, first of all, the software and it's the change in the way that the ledger is now more centralized and how that interacts with the businesses at point of sale and then how the Fed uses artificial intelligence to crunch that data in real time to then micromanage your spending or issue stimulus checks or uh, increase velocity of money or incorporate negative real interest rates or charge you your taxes on a who knows a daily basis you know that's another thing Aaron that right now businesses have to pay their taxes once every quarter they're supposed to and if they want to they can wait till the end of the year and pay a bit of a penalty but with central bank digital if this is now all in the Fed's balance sheet so it's not this decentralized networks of ledgers it's just one ledger then the Fed doesn't need to go through the banking system they can you know, or let's say the Fed and the Treasury merge and co-manage this uh, ledger, then they can just take those taxes right out of the business's account every single day, every single week, and then they just get your money in advance interest-free, which is just basically what they do quarterly right now. So my main point there, Aaron, that I'd love for you to try to think through is how money doesn't exist. 
And the only thing that exists right now is a network of ledgers. So how would that network of ledgers change if the Fed had the only ledger, the only retail ledger in the domestic economy? So let's go to your question, uh, cryptos. I don't think it would impact cryptos at all. I don't think, I, because one question that I posted on Twitter is how would we know if the Federal Reserve or if we, how would we know that the central planners haven't already transitioned to a central bank digital currency? If there's no money, if all it is is a ledger, how would you even know, Aaron? I don't know. You wouldn't, unless they came out and announced that, hey, Aaron, just FYI, you know, uh, you know, Wells Fargo sends you an email and says, just FYI, uh, your, your account is now a liability of the Fed. If they did mm -hmm. that, or if they outwardly came out and started to leverage this new consolidated system with the new software, that's the only way you would know. It, it's it's just like a debt jubilee. Be, I, well, not, now I don't want to go too far off topic, but it's a similar process that you know that the Federal Reserve owns trillions of dollars worth of treasuries. So those okay. that that's an asset of the Federal Reserve, and that's a liability of the federal government. But those are the only two balance sheets involved. That's it. So if someone came into the Federal Reserve one day and just hit the delete button on the ledger, because remember, the treasuries don't exist. There's just an entry on the ledger. So if they just hit the delete button, then that deletes the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet, about, say, $2 trillion, or whatever the number would be, and then the ledger in the network for the federal government as far as their liabilities would decrease by two trillion but would anybody know i, I don't know no no not unless they announced it because no one else's balance sheet would be impacted and i think it's the exact okay. same thing with the central bank digital currency no one would even know that the ledger changed no one would even know that now all of a sudden the government and the central planners the authoritarians are are watching and have set up all of this new software. Now, most likely, the word would get out because they would have to use the private sector because if they didn't have the private sector using this software that was integrated with the, the ledger, then they couldn't really get any data other than the entity where you spent money, like Cheesecake Factory. They couldn't tell if you bought a steak. They couldn't tell if you bought a salad. They couldn't tell if you bought crickets. And you use, the reason I'm using crickets is because, you know, that's what they want you to eat. The, so the, the steak would, exactly. So the steak would be bad, bad, bad. But the salad and the yeah. crickets would be good, good, good. Negative social points. <laughs> you got it. You got it. So it, unless, so I think the word would get out through the private sector because in order for this to be functionable, they, they would have to be on board. Like the government would have to come out and say, hey, in order to, have a business license you have to register with this software and you have to use it or else you can't get your business license is there is there is there any way to be more off grid because the idea of being off grid um i'm just taking information that i've seen before i heard someone say you can't really be off grid these days no more so the best plan is to be on many grids. So multiple passports, multiple licenses, multiple 
not multiple identities, but multiple identities in other countries. There's multiple pa- multiple passports, is what you're saying. Yeah, multiple passports, basically. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a great plan. Uh, that's kind of uh, to a certain degree. That's what I do, and I'm good buddies with a guy named Andrew Henderson and Simon Black, who are experts in the field. But I, I think, and and then you know, to your point with cryptocurrency, or more specifically, Bitcoin. I think it's a way to have purchasing power outside of this system. Now, how much, you know, what will that purchasing power buy you? I don't know, because it depends on how many people are accepting that for goods and services. Because, you know, what I'm talking about is a ledger that, I mean, I'm sure many people on this live stream right now are just saying, well, George, that sounds exactly like a distributed ledger, like, uh, like Bitcoin uses exactly. That's it's exactly what I have in my mind. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. So it, you know, do you want to use the uh, the one you know the private distributed ledger, or do you want to use the Fed distributed ledger? Um, obviously, they're going to be pushing for the Fed distributed ledger. But how many people are going to opt out of that system? Uh, what are the legal ramifications going to be for opting out of that? System? I don't know. But I Panties. think it, yeah, sure. Who knows? But I think as a prudent, as someone who values freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism, I think it's very wise to have purchasing power outside of the system and to have as much, how should I say this, as much uh, political uh, diversity as possible. Uh, So what I'm saying is, you know, have something out of this, have Bitcoin, gold, you know, I like Rolex watches as an example. I think that's one of the best things you should have for purchasing power outside of the system because you get a gold Rolex that's worth 40 grand and that's going to mostly maintain its value and you can slap that thing on your wrist and go anywhere in the world and and still maintain that that purchasing power, right? So anyway, but uh, having multiple passwords, having multiple bank accounts and then like the way I live my life and I'm not saying that everyone should do this or everyone can but it's, you know, I could basically move tomorrow and all I'd have to do is pack up like three bags. They'd be big bags, but, you know, just my AV equipment and everything else. So I'm kind of, I set up my life to where I can move easily if I need to. And I try not to plan more than six months in advance because the world is so tumultuous and volatile. I have no idea what it's going to look like in six months' time. You know, so many people on my YouTube channel ask me about specific countries. And they say, oh, George, would you move to Colombia? Would you move to Mexico? Would you move to Croatia? Would you move to Dubai? Would you move to... And I say, listen, first of all, you got to do the homework yourself, but you got to realize that even if you move there, you might want to try it out, but you have to move there understanding that you might want to move again in six months. I think the days are over where you can say, okay, I'm going to move to XYZ location and I'm going to plan on being there for the next 10 years. I think you can do that, but if you're someone that values freedom, liberty, free market capitalism like I do, if freedom and liberty is a huge, huge priority, I don't think that's possible in today's world. You have to try to set up your life to where it's extremely flexible 
And I think that's the biggest, that and having purchasing power outside the system is the, I think the, one of the best ways that you can kind of insulate yourself to the degree that you can against this centralization of everything, including if you want to call it money, but I much prefer to call it this, uh, this system of ledgers. You know, in fact, on a live stream today, I said, moving forward, I'll, I might try not to use CBDC or central bank digital currency. I might try to use the term central bank ledger network or central bank uh, centralized ledger or something like that, because that's a much more descriptive term. And it helps people, I think, understand that moving from a CBDC is not, you're not changing money. You're not programming money. Money doesn't even change. It's like having an Excel spreadsheet, Aaron, and saying that the numbers are somehow going to change. Well, you wouldn't change the numbers. You, you'd, you'd change the, the, the Excel, the, the program itself. You'd change the software. You, you wouldn't, the numbers are just the numbers, you see. And you say, well, George, that's a small change. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does, because a lot of people are out there uh, saying that if we have a new central bank digital currency, then the dollar is going to be replaced. And therefore, any contract that you have that's denominated in dollars, such as a mortgage, is just going to be worthless. Or treasuries are going to be worthless. But you see, that implies that we're, that the Fed is going to shut down the banks over the weekend. And the banks are holding this big bag of stuff. Right, money, dollars. And the Federal Reserve is going to come in and say, no, 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 we're not using that big bag of stuff. We're going to use this brand new big bag of stuff. But, well, that wouldn't make sense. No, because there is no bag of stuff. There's no money. So how can we replace money when it doesn't even exist to begin with? So it already exists, the centralized bank's currency? It only exists in the form of ledgers and an Excel spreadsheet. And what matters with an Excel spreadsheet is not the numbers. It's it's the software itself. And so, so that's, I think, would help people see things a little more clearly. Because then you have to ask yourself, how would the current banking system be integrated into a more centralized ledger network and then how would the euro dollar system be integrated into that because you probably know from watching my videos there and the majority of dollars are created outside of the united states with no bank reserves with no cash with no green pieces of paper that's where the majority of dollars are created so what happens when those dollars are created or those entries on the ledger and how is that ledger network integrated now into the new more consolidated ledger network domestically that we would need in order for the central planners to be able to micromanage the economy to the degree to which they desire. So have I given you some homework, Aaron? Yes, I'll have to do a lot of research from now. Thank you. <laughs> I also wanted to ask I also wanted to ask about uh, you know, now I asked about how does it how would it affect crypto? And it's you gave me the answer. It really would. I don't think it really would. No. I just wanted to ask, what about you know precious metals, gold and silver? I actually don't. I own silver myself. So, yeah. I mean, but I with the it, whole yeah, manipulation, it, I don't think it would affect that either, Aaron. Uh, I think it still just boils down to kind of market supply demand dynamics. Uh, there might be a little more demand because people like the people on this uh, live stream right now are probably going to want to hold some purchasing power or even more purchasing power once it comes out that they're using this. And therefore, that would probably increase demand for 
stuff outside of the system, such as Bitcoin, gold, silver. But as far as uh, gold blowing up in price because the old dollars are hyperinflating away because we're not using them anymore, to me, that's that's not going to happen. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mr. Thanks, thanks, thanks for watching the videos, buddy. Yeah, no problem. A big fan. Great advice. All right. I'll, I'll stay open. All right. Open-minded. And thanks a lot, my friend. You're way, step ahead of the, you're way ahead of the game right now. 15 years old, that's for sure. Hey, Gary. It's Gary, what's up, brother? I'm uh, pretty happy that you're hosting this. Uh, I think it's going to be enlightening for a lot of people. Uh, I think a lot of people will come onto the channel and they'll talk about their different narratives and perspective. I've been listening to you for many years, and it's it's great to uh, to have this topic. My personal view is that everything that you think of as value or anyone in the audience thinks of as value is simply because of social consensus. You talk right. often in your, uh, on stage or otherwise about it really boils down to goods and services. And it also, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a ledger entry by a central bank or whether it's a ledger entry of one neighbor bartering with another neighbor and saying, Hey, I'll give you that bushel of corn and you'll give me this uh, goat. Like, these yeah. are just and they don't write it down on a piece of paper, right? It's just memory. Yeah. It, it, you know, before it was memory about uh, you know paying it forward or you'll get me, you'll, you'll pay me back. That was memory, and then you formalize it when you don't know the other person, and the other person might be a trustless system. So that's why you're going to have a lot of people that are interested in this topic, in that you know distributed ledger without counterparty, without government, in some form, um, you know. Uh, altering the books, so to speak, or obfuscating actual accounts. And what you said earlier in your your opening was interesting because how do you know that it's not already that system? Well, how do right. how do you know that you owe or that there is a thirty trillion dollar debt? Like we we only hear it and we hear it echoed. And if we have enough charismatic speakers then we tend to say, well, I trust that person and they're part of this clique that are telling us how things are. Because until you can't trade, until you can't transact, until you are locked down and restricted, you really don't realize it. Like, you're, you know, your purchasing power is based on what service or good you're providing to other people or, you know, some kind of ledger entry that you're, uh, you have some kind of, um, you know, a percentage or something like that as far as a yield instrument. Um, but there's, there's again, I don't want to take a lot of the topic because I'm not an expert in the, uh, in the regulation and what's actually happening in multiple countries. I'd invited a few people that are part of the audience now, one of which is Jesse. His name is uh, Just Ask Jesse. Another person is Walrus. And a third person actually dialing in from Australia, I see in your, your audience is... Uh, crypto crazy and they have hundreds of millions of dollars in this particular industry this niche so i think that they're going to be better speakers for the for the topic okay yeah gary appreciate it buddy hopefully we'll see you soon and so if any of those gentlemen or, or ladies would like to uh raise their hand i think that's the way this works i'm just gonna if i see someone raise their hand i'll, I'll click on them and invite them to speak and if no one's raising their hand, okay, so I'll, I'll do that with this gentleman. UFO, okay, we'll invite him, add a speaker, okay. And then the next in line for a request, let's bring them up, is 
this person crypto crazy okay added speaker crypto crazy okay there we go so uh ufo 42 yes do you have something to add to that yes i have um because i like uh what you have been uh talking about and this was like the history of money but the history of money is uh, also the history of uh, when mankind changed to society because the first writing in uh, uh, mankind was ledgers and uh, right. out of ledgers uh, 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 people developed uh, uh, letters and um, uh, so uh, this has evolved until now and it's been uh, still the same so if you put this on to uh, a CBC or whatever you uh, would prefer to call it um, this is uh, uh, still basically the same thing Great. Uh, Great point. The other thing is that there is something new uh, which is really um, adding value, uh, which is uh, uh, about something that uh, just Gary just said, because it's all about trust. Like, how, how, how can you trust someone else? And uh, um, to uh, make this part better, uh, uh, people developed something like uh, the blockchain technology, and now we have a thing called DeFi, and it's decentralized. And uh, you have been talking also about, uh, uh, well, moving around, uh, uh, maybe uh, I've been uh, uh, yeah moving around a lot, but uh, uh, not with the thought of uh, uh, having to move around again uh, uh, after six months. But uh, 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 there is a point. Um, uh, you want uh, to have some stability, and the stability is, uh, I think, uh, could be created through uh, DeFi a lot better than through uh, uh, any CBDC or whatever the nation states are putting out there. And um, so uh, um, I think uh, it this is something that uh, we should like go for a lot and um, maybe one little other thing like you you know like if you think about moving in six months again after you move um, it sounds like you're like on on on, on the run yeah maybe or well, no, not happy I, I, where, where you so, are just to be clear I just to be clear, I don't move every. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know, I know, I know. It was. I, I, just, I just have that option, and I just don't move exactly. really more than six months. Yeah. But if I'm still very and, happy with where I am, and then you know, what? What will you take? Um, and people were putting out things like uh, uh, gold, silver, whatever, and uh, uh, thing. Uh, gold's pretty heavy, and uh, um, if you own uh, real estate and house, and uh, if you have a. Uh, Van Gogh on your wall, what are you going to take? The house or the Van Gogh when you move? And if you have uh, uh, 12 words or 24 uh, in a decentralized uh, uh, crypto wallet, um, uh, it, then what are you going to take? So uh, uh, what is going to win this race? Um, and so I think that uh, uh, crypto is uh, adding a lot of value uh, it to 
uh, it just uh, being free and being a, a, a free person um, more yeah. than what any central bank can uh, deliver or do. This is my uh, two cents. Yeah, I agree. There's a cost-benefit analysis as the world is right now. And I want to emphasize as the world is right now. Because in two years, five years, ten years, who knows what it looks like. Who knows what the volatility of, let's say, Bitcoin looks like. But to your point, I mean, there is nothing superior than crypto or Bitcoin as far as your uh, ability to move your wealth. How can you beat t you know, owning, let's say, $100 million or something and being able to put that in your back pocket and just hop on a plane and go somewhere else? That is definitely the benefit. <laughs> and that is a huge benefit. But the cost is that you've got to roll the dice to a certain extent with some volatility and before things are completely priced in whatever that cryptocurrency is. And and you and then you deal with a, a bit of a paradox or a chicken and the egg type problem where in order for you to reduce that cost of volatility, you have to have more adoption. But in order to have more adoption, you have to reduce the volatility. So I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just saying that those are the things that I think we should be thinking about. And that's the current cost-benefit analysis that I think that needs to be made when you're setting up your portfolio and how much purchasing power you want to have outside of the system. And of that purchasing power that is outside of the system, how do you divvy it up? Another thing that I would mention on that note would be the network effect of not only Bitcoin, but the network effect of the U.S. dollar. I was listening to uh, someone that, you know, a good buddy of mine who's in the Bitcoin space. And I think this is a very common position because this person was getting a little pushback from a podcast host saying, well, what makes Bitcoin unique? You know, why is there this moat with Bitcoin? Why can't someone just take the code and create another Bitcoin that's somehow a little bit better? And then everyone gravitates towards that, just like the people with MySpace went right over to Facebook or the people that were using Yahoo went right over to Google. And the answer that this person had was, well, because of the network effect of Bitcoin. And it's so far ahead and there's so many engineers and super, super, super smart people that are working on it right now in the, in the Lightning Network and whatnot, that it, there's no way that any other cryptocurrency could catch up, even if it was slightly superior or the same. But what, what's interesting about that argument is that's the exact same argument you would use for Bitcoin having zero chance of overtaking the dollar. I'm not saying that Bitcoin won't, because the argument there would be, well, George, it's so superior, and the superior form of money over hit over time always wins. Okay, I, I, I get that. But you do have to at least acknowledge 
that we have in human history, we have never, ever seen a network like the U.S. dollar. When you think about the fact that 70% of global transactions are settled in dollars, and the entire euro to all these banks, all this liquidity, all the, the treasuries, which basically are the collateral for the derivatives and all this. I'm not saying this stuff is good. I'm just saying that this is the system. We, we it, you know, it's fine not to like it, but we have to accept the reality and the fact that it exists. And so when we're thinking about a world where, yes, I'd like to live in the same place for the next 10 years, and I'm just going to kind of hedge my bets by holding, let's say, 100% of my net worth or outside of the system in, in Bitcoin, well, that assumes that, A, there's not going to be that much volatility, and that also assumes that there's other people around you that are going to be providing goods and services that will allow you to maintain your lifestyle and settle in that whatever it is in, in, in Bitcoin in this example, or that you've got the off ramps there to take that purchasing power and transfer it into a unit of account that someone will actually exchange for the good and service that you need to not only maintain your standard of living, but also just to survive. So, and again, I want to be very, very clear. This, this is not an anti-crypto message, an anti-Bitcoin message. I'm just saying that this is the way the world is set up right now. So if we go to a world where we're able to completely transact outside of the system, these are the speed bumps. These are the roadblocks that we're going to need to overcome. Just, just being realistic about it. Gary, did you have something you want to say about that, buddy? Yeah, I mean, uh, before I pass the mic is really about uh, these. We live in a world, even though we have internet and flying inter, uh, airplanes, we live in a world under the threat of violence. And I mean that from the form of, you know, if you are in a country that, quote unquote, has strong intellectual property rights, uh, physical property rights and things like that, and someone damages or harms your investment, whether it's because you paid with dollars or euros and you bought a building and now you have tenants, uh, you know, there's there's consequence. Uh, there's there's under the threat of law, uh, legal, uh, you know, some other people with guns basically to enforce your rights. And in certain countries, of course, you already know, uh, Africa might have tons of resources in the ground, but they also have a lot of dictatorships or warlords. And so because you have re resources doesn't mean that you're going to be productive. You can be pushed off of the land. Um, so like it is partly this hybrid, like, like I operate in, in such, but I also operate inside of real estate for many years and I care about like this bridge. And that's why, you know, if someone is going to participate in, in Bitcoin, uh, they have in a lot of countries made it outlawed. You've heard about uh, Silk Road and things like that, or peer to peer uh, cash is not really a thing. It really is that Bitcoin transacts through centralized exchanges like Coinbase or whatever in the United States. And part of that is a fee service uh, for trade. So like, I love the ideas behind De DeFi or uh, basically uh, decentralized exchanges that are based on math or protocol or programming instead of permission. And what the challenge is, 
is as Bitcoin becomes popular as a brand or as a name that's been talked about for 13 or 14 years, that's what people think of as a different asset class. And it gets called often by, you know, Lynn Alden and others, Mark Moss, uh, as like the only thing in the crypto space that matters. But it really comes down to you can have thousands of people that believe in a small, a smaller group of people that believe uh, zealotly in something and gives it value. Or you can have a lot of people that say Bitcoin is uh, an example of an asset class. And by the way, I'm going to keep it in a centralized exchange in a country that, uh, you know, can take away my rights at any time at gunpoint. So like these ramps from whatever we're trading in value so that we can have tangible goods and services is, is the issue, you know, doesn't matter the ledger, whether it's the UK saying, uh, you know, give us, uh, you know, pounds of sterling, uh, silver in trade or, uh, you know, the gold history in 1971 going off of the gold standard in the United States, you know, Lynette Zhang and all the other metal people, you know, these are still permissioned, you know, everything is at the threat of violence in my opinion. Yeah. But we, I don't know if it had enough adoption we wouldn't really need the on-ramps and off-ramps, right? Uh, let's just say for a moment we could just snap our fingers tomorrow and uh, the whole brick nations were all using Bitcoin just like El Salvador. So they're trading amongst one another. So all the input, or let's say the majority of the input cost for the manufacturing or the goods was uh, priced and settled in Bitcoin, then... I don't know that we would need the on-ramps and the off-ramps. The only reason we currently need them is because that that darn dollar network system is so strong that even if you go to El Salvador, although you may be able to transact in Bitcoin, the majority of their inputs that are coming into the country and creating the stuff that you, that uh, you know, outside of services, you know, the stuff that they have, that's still going to be settled in dollars. And therefore, they're going to need dollars and they're not going to be able to actually price stuff in Bitcoin. Uh, you could pay in Bitcoin, but it's still going to be priced in dollars. So they're, again, just kind of a chicken and egg type thing. How can you get the, how do we eliminate the need for those on-ramps and off-ramps by adoption if you still have the volatility that we see and um i don't know i don't know the answer to that I, I think i don't think anybody does but i think it's it's something that uh the community and everyone that's interested in freedom and liberty should be thinking about again okay. social so, networks or what gives something value you talked about the network effect whether it was facebook or myspace or whatever it you know people migrated from myspace over to facebook because they didn't have economic energy to shift they didn't say, you know, I'm in this monopoly that is paying me called MySpace. And by the way, I'm going to shun this new idea of uh, Facebook. You know, it, it gave better social connection and better posting of pictures. But it's not the same thing as saying I'm going to migrate my economic energy and I'm going to put it in a, in a different system. That's, that's the risk of going from a, uh, uh, you know, your, your, your boss pays you in dollar on your W-2 and you pay tax based on, uh, you know, dollar. So like that's, that's the, the, the risk, the risk is conversion and through social networks and, and you know, all the stuff since, uh, the lockdown of 2020, when I used to watch your channel, uh, when it was first launching, uh, 19 and 20, uh, you know, 
social networks are incredibly powerful. And these are kind of like just saying the idea, the idea of communism can be very powerful. You can just say, I'm going to have a benevolent uh, leadership that's not going to harm me, uh, you know, in some way. So then communism thrives or, you know, whether you say that uh, democracy thrives, you know, these, these are just consensus ideas between, you know, larger, small groups. Mm. Yeah. And I would add just finally going back to that dollar network that it is almost impossible to articulate how, how powerful and strong that network actually is. And so anyway, let's, so we've got a couple more speakers, uh, guys, do you have anything to add to the current conversation or you've got a slightly different topic you want to discuss? I think there's George, it's uh, crypto crazy here. Thanks for hosting this space. Sure. I, look, I've been listening to your content and watching your content for a little while now. I really enjoy it. But thank you for doing this. Um, the specific questions that I, well, not questions, but just in comments I wanted to make. One of the biggest challenges that CBDCs will face uh, is something that we currently face in um, cryptocurrencies in any case, and that's the inter interoperability. So there's a number of projects at the moment looking at trying to overcome some of those challenges. And in Australia in particular, there is uh, something called Project Dunbar, which predominantly looked at collaboration across a number of different companies in the region. Just looking at how do we actually transfer value across these different DLTs. And I think, as you know, the difference here is we are actually moving value across the chain as opposed to the SWIFT system, which is like a messaging system. So despite the fact that CDDCs are being discussed openly, and which is a good thing, I kind of feel that the biggest hurdle that, that it's going to be faced is with is how you actually manage or transact between different DLTs and avoid the, um, the risks that are currently inherent in bridges that occur across existing quick currency platforms. So I think there's some challenges there. I think just on the positive though, with CBDCs, and I think it's easy to, to come up with all the negatives. There's a range of positives to mine, and that is, look, in many respects, we'd argue that um, the Fed at the moment really only has uh, a, a one major instrument to use to actually address uh, demand. But here we've got an opportunity of potentially being a little bit more targeted. So all of a sudden, you've got the opportunity of being targeted, introducing targeted interventions uh, that avoids the blood instrument that's currently used. So, for example, you could actually be targeting certain types of lending, making them either um, penalizing some of that or potentially promoting certain types of transactions that you think seem to exist. So that's on the positive side. And I think what the scary part, so all of this is, is, is the inappropriate use of that, right? So we know that potentially there could be things like travel restrictions, uh, we hang about, you know, and I think I like your phrasing, the surveillance sickness, targeting interventions to ensure that uh, people are vaccinated against certain things, freezing accounts, etc. There's some of the scary parts of CBDCs. But I think fundamentally the biggest issue being in the system face is how do we actually transfer from one DLC to another without some of the issues that um, our bridging creates for those of our... Mm. Yeah, uh, thanks for the comments. I I do see how there would be benefits to a central bank digital currency as far as efficiency. It would be far easier to transfer 
uh, dollars to or transfer your money to another country that it would almost be instantaneous because in this world uh, I think the corresponding banking relationships that make things rather cumbersome uh, would be significantly streamlined I don't need to go into the how the plumbing or the mechanics work there as far and you're right they, they would have the ability to completely individualize monetary policy target lending but I don't know on net balance that's a good thing <laughs> because give that to the central planners and I think there's a 99.999% probability that that's going to lead to some really, really bad stuff, uh, not to mention a severe misallocation of resources and uh, malinvestment and all that. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely, the point here though is it is a cost-benefit analysis, just like anything else, and there are benefits. There, there would be benefits, um, but I, get, I think we all agree that the costs, in this case, would just far, far, far outweigh those benefits, and we might disagree a little bit on what some of the costs and what the benefits are. Yeah, look, I, t I totally agree. I think the um, the negatives far outweigh the benefits. I guess the only other comment. It's just relating to um, transacting cryptocurrencies and the need to offer up. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big, I'm a big believer. We we don't necessarily need to offer up. The challenge that we have, if you're a merchant, um, yeah. predominantly you're you're having to do with if you're using or accepting crypto payments, the perception is that you're having to do with significant volatility, and I'd argue that that is the case for the majority of crypto except for stable coins. Now, if you were using stable coins as a method of payment, potentially you wouldn't need to exit crypto in any way whatsoever because there would be a, a view that, hey, that's a very stable way of transacting. The merchant could do away with some fully um, heavy charges for transacting in the traditional fiat method as opposed to using cryptocurrency. So the merchant might be more... Um, open to the idea of receiving payments if they're in the form of a stable coin. And more importantly, they'd probably do that and avoid a lot of the homers uh, that they're having to deal with. The challenge, however, is is getting that message out and having merchants understand the difference between, uh, say, using a stable coin as opposed to using Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency as a method of payment. And I would assume you'd probably know better than I would. But I would assume that would be easier with a business that provided services versus a business that provided goods. Like, it would seem to me that that would be far easier if you owned a hair salon and your really only input was, you know, a couple of employees and maybe some rent versus Target, where you had to import all of your goods and you're completely dependent on all of these third parties that would most likely demand to be paid in dollars because so many of their input costs are commodities such as oil, which are are, are settled in dollars. You, you know what I'm saying? So, I do. I you know, maybe, maybe it's a little easier for the first transition to come on the services side. Yeah, and look, I tend to agree with you. I think predominantly what will happen is that you're right. With adoption, some of those barriers will reduce, um, but fundamentally... 
merchants, you know, and I can't blame them. Why, why on earth, as a merchant, would you want to accept a cryptocurrency that's so volatile? It just, it doesn't make sense to me. However, if, if the method is to use stable coins, I think that's a very good entry level. Um, but it's just getting that, that information out. Mm. I guess there are plenty of challenges in crypto, no doubt. Here's the other, and probably regulation is the biggest issue. And what we're seeing, and again, I, I you know, probably picked from my accent, I'm Australian. There's a lot of stuff happening in Australia that um, I think will start to roll out more broadly. And one of the things that occurring, is occurring here is that they're doing what they're calling a matching process, where they're looking at DeFi projects to sort of try and match potential regulatory approaches to those pro protocols or projects with the aim of trying to capture everyone under a similar regulatory framework. But what they tend to miss, and I think this is missed more broadly, is that um, a true true DeFi is completely decentralized. There is no one one organization that manages or actually controls anything. It's, by its very nature, it's completely decentralized. So from my perspective, the best regulation that can occur there is, is code audit. So if you have solid code audits, that should be the price of income for a DeFi project, rather than suggesting that, hey, we need to regulate this because the retail market will be mildly impacted. Well, the retail market in general in crypto has been has been impacted negatively, largely by centralised players. It's the centralised bodies that need to be regulated, not the two true DeFi protocols themselves. Yeah. And I mean, that's what going back to the central bank digital currency, or maybe better said, the central bank consolidated ledger system. That's it. It, that's, it seems like the world is, is bifurcating uh, to extremes where on one hand, you've got, you know, more decentralization with this DeFi that you're referring to. And on the other hand, we've got more and more and more centralization in the form of that power going to the central planners and the authoritarians of these uh, of this new network system and this new software and there's no middle ground and who which, which one wins and how do you navigate a world where there's just where there's it's binary and um, yeah that's something we're all going to have to think through thanks for your time Joe. it's really appreciate it thank you yeah thanks for the input okay so we've got walrus do you have something to to say there, buddy. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate the uh, the platform. So I, I think where a lot of the like the first thing for most people is to wrap their head around the differences in like the wholesale versus retail side of these things. So as you said, like when it comes to wholesale CBDCs, well, we already have central banks, and the majority of currencies digital. So CBDCs, as you said, pretty much already function. Like that's what we have now, right? Like even when we say distributed ledgers. We to talk about the distribution of the ledger, but the ledgers already exist. And if there's going to be a central point of issuance, like a CBDC, where again, as you said, it doesn't change much when these tools already exist and you can't take pictures of them. This is just like you said, a consolidation and a differencing on the ledger side. It doesn't change many of the mechanics on the outside. So where where this can be a positive, I think, is similar to what we've seen with digital communications. So you don't have to do any crazy routing to send an email from from a Gmail account to a Yahoo account. They just link they link on the back and you have that interoperability. And this is where I think we can see the same with CBDCs. So 
where we trying to do certain things and DLT and decentralize, um, do these things in a trustless way. That's not really the goal of a wholesale CBDC. It's just to increase efficiency. So just like in communications where a lot of these things got, were made much, much more efficient and much easier with like over the top communications, like WhatsApp and these things where I think we can see the benefits from, from the CBDC side is what we saw with the digital Euro and like the target services and the target system where it, it, it used a centralized ledger to produce and move some of these things. Because again, we pretty much already operate in a CBDC function world. The other, when it comes to these things being very interoperable, I think Hong Kong and their money authority are the ones that are doing the best job on this currently. And they have the Embridge project, which is between them, Thailand, China, the UAE, and they're working on essentially where these different participants, they have this, this collaborative middle, whereas this bridging happens and the central bank entities can sign both sides of the ledger and allow that, that transaction between them. So that, that gives this fluidity between money markets, as you guys are discussing. So that's, that's where there's that infrastructure is getting built and where there can be a lot of efficiency that again, the same exact way with communications where it used to be a dollar a minute or some crazy rate for long distance. And now most of us and the younger ones don't even remember when that, that was the thing that that communication interoperability at scale has changed so much that we don't even think twice about it. Just everything just flies through. We never even have to engage with some of that, you know, that settlement or base layer on communications. So I think with the CBDCs, some of the issues that we have in DeFi, they don't have to solve because they're not trying to solve a central power issue or the Byzantine general issue. They're trying to just increase efficiency and still maintain that, that centralized entity player. So again, like the Embridge and some of these things, I think that with the wholesale side, we'll have a lot of advantages from some of that efficiency in money markets. The It's the retail side where most of these concerns play out and where both of you guys have aligned that again, I think most of us would say that there's more cons than there is pros, but it can help with the onboarding into the rest of these things. And so with things like some of these stable coins or, or even Bitcoin itself, you don't have to have say like an equal and opposite. I think when it comes to operating outside of the system, you just have to have enough participation. So they can already come shut down accounts or pass legislation or all these sort of like sweeping sort of machete level, uh, interventions on people's, you know, ability to transact or just monetary policy. So the difference in having a retail CBDC is that they can be much, much more targeted on those things. So we, as long as we still maintain some level of either, you know, mobility and the freedom to actually move around between these different jurisdictions or enough viability in Bitcoin and stable coins to transact at some level, then that would, then you can take some of the advantages of the increased efficiency of these CBDC projects, especially at the wholesale side. And if they're done more in like the Hong Kong model, then on some of the more, um, more permission versions, like what JP Morgan does with Quorum, where it, at least there's some idea of interoperability in the beginning, then, then we can take advantage of these things. And all you need is some level for some participants to engage outside of that. And you don't quite have that same 1984 George Elwell approach to where you have one monetary system where now they have hyper-sized controls. So a few of these things I, I think will make a big difference. And I, it, with that separation of like wholesale versus retail, with wholesale, I think there's significantly less changes and more upside. It's the retail CBDC side that is where the, the scary stuff happens and where I think that there's less advantage for participants. Well said. Very well said. And just maybe so I could phrase it in a little bit different terms that people might uh, understand a little bit easier. 
when you're talking about wholesale, you're talking about the Fed's balance sheet or the central bank's liabilities. Uh, those are the assets of the commercial banking system. So when you think about these ledgers, the way they exist right now, we've really got two, uh, two balance sheet liabilities. You've got the liabilities of the central bank. Those are the bank reserves. So those are would be assets of the commercial banks. And then you have liabilities of the commercial banks themselves, and that would be retail. Those would be the assets of the average Joe and Jane, your bank account that you have at Wells Fargo, B of A, et cetera. So that's, that's retail. And then wholesale are the accounts of the big banks that are dollar liabilities of the Federal Reserve in the form of bank reserves. So I think that what might happen, just kind of transitioning the conversation into what's the trigger? What, what's the catalyst, assuming that we don't have this central bank digital currency right now without us even knowing about it? And I think it might be a, a different form of quantitative easing. So back in 2008 or 2009, the Fed came out quantitative easing, basically bought the garbage off the asset side of the balance sheet of the commercial banking system so they wouldn't go under and so they would be able to continue to function. But I think maybe, just maybe, in the next wave here, the next crisis that we have that that may allow them the opportunity, I mean, never let a good crisis go to waste, to implement this new ledger system with this software that we've been talking about, is to, instead of doing QE on the asset side of the bank's balance sheets, they might be they might do QE on the liability side. So you could imagine this world going back to 2008 where we had this financial crisis. And I know the probability of that is very low, but let's just say we get that. We get something like that. And people, retail, are freaking out because their bank is going to go under, you can run on the bank and all this. And the Fed says, listen, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and we will just take that liability off of the commercial bank's balance sheet and we will bring that onto our balance sheet. So average Joe and Jane, you've got nothing to worry about. You don't need FDIC. You don't need to worry about the banks going under. Never have to worry about that for the rest of your life. Your, your life. And the result is the financial system is going to be far more stable because now the liabilities of the non-bank entities, retail, and the real economy are now on the Fed's balance sheet, and that's a bank that can't go under. So what's not to like? <laughs> and so when I was thinking about that, the next step becomes, okay, let's just, if they if they moved everything over to, as far as the, the bank's liability, the deposit liability of the commercial banking system, they moved everything to the Fed's balance sheet, then how do the banks continue to create money without having the ability to manipulate the Fed's balance sheet. Because if they're out there, let's say, creating a loan in repo, and and they have no deposit liabilities, then if they're creating that loan in repo, then they would have to impact the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet would have to expand. And that gets, like, super weird. Like, like where... So then the liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet and the asset is on the commercial bank's balance sheet? You know, how does that work? So I think that what we might see is, to your point, the retail going onto the Fed's balance sheet 
but the, the, the wholesale, the interbank accounts staying as they are. So if we're a financial institution, if we're a bank, if we're a hedge fund, a pension fund, you still have an account with Wells Fargo. That's still a liability of Wells Fargo. So the current financial system can, can continue to operate because to your point, the Fed really doesn't care what the banksters are doing. They don't want to monitor all their transactions. The central planners want to monitor, monitor the transactions and control the transactions of the average Joe and Jane. They just want the financial economy to do their bidding for them. So again, right now, the Wells Fargo of the worlds, they have on the liability side of their balance sheet, they have deposit accounts for non-bank entities, but then they also have deposit accounts for other banks and for financial institutions. So just so I'm clear, I think they would probably keep those deposit accounts, those deposit liabilities for financial institutions. And the Fed through doing QE would take those retail non-bank entity liabilities off their balance sheet then onto the Feds. And that's how you kind of keep repo. You, you know, you don't disrupt repo. You don't disrupt the Euro dollar market. You don't disrupt the financial economy while having, while transitioning to a ledger system where you can completely micromanage the real economy. And I think that's kind of what you're saying. To some degree, absolutely. And I, I think you can look at what the recent actions have been and see how that would play out, where I think that the initial outroll of a retail CBDC would be in a program similar between UBI or like food stamp assistance. Yeah. And and so not only one, that's the that's the the tranche of the population that's the least likely to push back against the negative. So say someone like the couple of people up here, maybe we can say, no, I don't want to take that. I don't want the extra permissions for two grand a month. But if you target it as, as a type of assistance, that population doesn't have the same, whatever you want to take it, privilege to be able to push back in the same regard, knowledge, literacy, all those things. And then you also are able to compartmentalize and segregate some of that aspects of inflation and kind of control the real world economy's level of inflation on goods and also the balance sheet along with not affecting with that same broad stroke uh, policy, what you can see with financial instruments because they want different rates of inflation there to control what their loans and what their and what their leverage plays look like versus what they'd want to do as far as making sure that they can hand that stuff over to the participants at the lower end of the spectrum. And then you'd have that segregation between how you want those funds to operate, how you want quantitative easing and all these things to handle it at a particular sector versus how it would affect all these guys who have much larger balance sheets and want different different plays as far as how they would want the money supply either to you know contract or expand. So I think that you'll see it pushed out in a way where the participants essentially have no option but to take it. And that again allows them to then segregate it, but they'll be able to do it with a very kumbaya message in the first place. No one will push back. And then they'll, they'll have that layer of our economy and your economy all rolled out in a nice way that no one's gonna push back against. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you've got some very, very clear thinking on on how this plays out. And I think the average Joe, you know, even if they didn't come out with UBI, which I think they will to entice people over, but, you know, offering higher rates of interest just for moving your account from Wells Fargo over to the Fed. And uh, on the topic of controlling inflation, I do think they'll have far more 
control over the demand side of the equation, far less control over the productivity side, you know, the supply side of goods and services. Although I think they will be able to impact the supply side to a certain degree, because having an infinite balance sheet means that you can lend capital for projects that don't necessarily have to be profitable. You can lend not based on merit, but based on narrative. And that may significantly change the dynamic for the production of goods and services, which as you know, can significantly impact the rate of consumer price inflation. Um, I think that's just a ticking time bomb. And I don't know of any example where central planners take over the issuance of, of credit and we see a good result. <laughs> this will, uh, my last comment there is that where they'll actually have some extra controls on that and that they can also not only segregate the tranches in one economy, but also the different sectors, because if they end up using something like the Enbridge, where there's this, where instead of distributed ledger, the way we think of, you know, multiple, multiple participants, if it's essentially a group of ledgers from centralized control, they can also control the flow of flow of money from one market to another. So Correct. if they want to take, you know, again, say an African economy or one of these that has a lot of results, then you can flood that economy with funds, get it off the ground, take advantage of those resources, keep that inflation localized and not worry about that basically blowing back with the wind into whichever economy you're trying to have, you know, lesser inflation and more control on the supply. So I think that we'll see that level of control between money markets will give them another tool that they don't really have now with that same level of engagement to prop up smaller economies, some of the, you know, behind the scenes economic hitmen, shadow shadow movements they do with with funds that most of us aren't really privy to. And where you see these differences in supply versus, you know, realistic price inflation, that that this that this should distribute a ledger on the backside will allow them to be very, very focused on which markets really receive this that supply side. So while they won't have it the way that you're stating, I think they will have it by a different level of, of money market managing. Yeah. And if I'm understanding you correctly, it's really you're integrating that ledger network between the central banks themselves that have an infinite balance sheet. So, so they can communicate far easier. And if 80% of retail is now on the balance sheet of a central bank, and then those central banks are on the same network. And then that same dynamic that I'm referring to with the United States can be pretty much global. Correct. And so again, the same way the U.S. is like offloaded inflation into different markets now, they would be able to actually track it. And one, they can add policies to either maintain that status quo, but also to make sure that it doesn't, that it's a one-way passage and it doesn't filter back. And essentially, again, you, you know, flush money in one place, say, you know, say Ukraine currently, there's a ton of funds moving in there for a variety of reasons. We don't want, again, if you're willing to inflate the supply and kind of extract value from the participants here to engage in that market, you don't want that necessarily to come back and defeat the initial purpose. So they could control that backflow and essentially have a, a, a valve release there as well between the, yeah, the yeah. ledger and that gives them an extra, an extra model. He controls. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that exists in some ways, but not in that level of exacting where they can monitor it to that same degree because of the flow of all these different instruments. So the segregating of those markets between those ledgers, I think gives them, you would think could be used positively, but we'll assume not. But that, that's a level of control. I don't think we really have a, a similar 
um, component yet in legacy that I think would change. Great point. Great point. Okay, Martin, I know you've been, you've had your hand up, buddy. Do you want to go ahead and uh, give us your thoughts? Yeah, sure. So just to provide, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So just to provide a bit of context. So I'm, I'm looking at the emergence of the digital euro from the European context, uh, okay. looking at civil society. So I've been following the project uh, quite a bit. Um, and like in, in Europe, it, it's really a, a very specific situation, very weird because there isn't really a case for CBDCs. If you look at our payment system, you have near instantaneous payments, which are free within the Eurozone. Mm-hmm. So you send money from one bank to another uh, using IBAN, you know, international IBAN, it takes, well, one to two days. But now you start having instant payments being rolled out. And f- as far as I can tell, the only reason for CBDCs is because of stable coins and anti-money laundering uh, and tourist financing and KYC, basically, uh, oh, like uh, the, the problem with that. Because if you look at most CBDCs, um, are non-custodial, meaning you can download an app on your phone and you already have, you can receive DAI, you can receive all kinds of stable coins that are in, on the Ethereum blockchain without having to undergo a single KYC or anti-money laundering kind of process. Uh, plus, there is a whole issue of, you know, the banks having the monopoly of deposits. And if suddenly people realize that switching to stable coins and using DeFi, they can get two, three, four, five, maybe even 6% interest on their um their stable coin um and if it's of course not right now it's not as as uh, secure and um uh, risk free as as you know like uh, regular money but if it comes to that then you know ultimately people will just like why would they stay uh, in a bank uh, having a bank account where they have zero percent interest rate when they can have six uh, and it's the same money um and there's they're like for the same risk um, plus, I mean, with stable coins, you can send money all over the world. I mean, you can send it, you can spend it in Guatemala and Latin America, China, wherever you want. Anyone just can download the app and receive your payments instantly. So that's a pretty steep competition uh, to quash. And to me, CBDCs is just like a, sort of an argument or a reason to regulate, you know, stable coins inside Europe out of existence or make them simply impractical by imposing this AML and KYC kind of requirements on them, because obviously it's, you know, um, it's the law, so you have to abide by the law. But I mean, that to me is is the only reason why you'd want to set up a CBDC as far as uh, in the Eurozone. Um, plus, I mean, it was really interesting what you were discussing, because I think most people don't, don't really understand the difference between CBDC and bank money. Um, but there is a clear difference. Normally, CBDCs is the equivalent of a digital version of cash. And cash is essentially almost like a very, very pe- peculiar kind of instrument in terms of money, the way I understand it. Because money is created via loans. So whenever a bank creates a loan, it creates a, a bunch of numbers on one side that credits your account. But on the other side, there's a contract which says that you have to reimburse the same amount of currencies that you borrowed plus interest over a certain period of time. And that contract is an asset to the bank and the money on your account is a liability to the bank because obviously it's, it's as if the bank said, I owe you $20,000 or $10,000 or whatever. And you have the right to take out that promise in the form of cash if you ask them to. And that's also a problem for banks. Obviously, that's the problem with bank runs is the banks don't have enough cash to honor all the promises that they give to people saying 
this is, you know, and then they just switch around these promises between banks. So that's fine if they do it that way. But if everybody tried to convert it into cash, which is like a portable version of your, your promise, that wouldn't work. But CBDCs, if you send your money from Wells Fargo or whatever, $10,000 to the Fed, and they credit your account with CBDCs, normally it's almost like they normally would have to convert that to cash because it's not tied to that initial loan of $10,000. So that messes up completely, I think, this kind of relationship between um, the money, the way that's created today and uh, money in the form of CBDCs and, and uh, central bank digital currencies. Um, and indeed, it's this way of trying to create risk-free money or that is not tied to loans uh, and this creation destruction cycle of money, uh, which would really mess up an economy. Because to my understanding, uh, economies are, are uh, functioning when there is a... a um, a, well, what basically the money um, supply fluctuates in sync with the total amount of goods and services in that economy. Now, when you're given a $10,000 loan, because you have to repay it, you have to create or recapture the or provide to society the equivalent of the value of $10,000 or whatever when you repay the loan. So, you know, if, for instance, we'd create an economy where goods would last forever, for instance, that wouldn't work. So when you create, like, say, 10,000 pairs of shoes with some credit, the moment where you've reimbursed all your credit, all the money is gone and destroyed. Normally, those 10,000 shoes also have to leave the economy at the same time, pretty much. Um, and that's what creates stability. And I just don't see how that is going to happen if they try to micromanage things. That's what, what was the lower bits. Yeah, of. I, yeah, I've actually given that some thought. And I think what, how it might look, might, I mean, we're all guessing here, is similar to Fannie and Freddie. Now, I don't, you said you're in Europe, correct, Martin? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know if they have something similar in Europe because obviously I don't know the system while there. But in the United States, especially with the big banks, they very rarely keep a mortgage on their balance sheet. As soon as the ink's dry, they're sending that straight over to Fannie and Freddie, which is basically, at all intents and purposes, the government. So what Fannie and Freddie does is they <clears throat> are basically the underwriting for the bank. So if you go down to Wells Fargo, B of A, a big bank here, and you apply for a mortgage, that's not really going, it's technically going to their underwriting, but they're just using the underwriting for Fannie and Freddie because they know darn well that as soon as they initiate that loan, they're going to flip it right over to them almost instantly. And they just collect a, a fee or a commission or whatever it is. They're just the mortgage almost like a, a, a mortgage broker, you know, they're, they're just the initiator. So th I think in a central bank digital currency world that, uh, that Walrus was talking about, you know, when we were talking about retail going over to the Fed's balance sheet, I mean, you've got a, a great point there. Well, how does the Fed, you know, central planner issuing a debt and hey, how does this work out? And I think that they do it the same way where the underwriting for not just mortgages, but pretty much everything would come from the Federal Reserve and the banks themselves would still exist at the retail le at the retail level to initiate those loans and be the liaison. But then even if it was a business loan, if it was a consumer loan, you know, whatever it was, a car loan, it would still just uh, 
they would still use the underwriting for the Federal Reserve. So when they created the loan, mm-hmm. that would increase the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet. Because to your point, that retail person would therefore have an account with them. So their account would increase by whatever the loan amount was. Let's say it was a $50,000 to buy a car. And then the offsetting asset on the Fed's balance sheet would be the loan that was created initially by the retail bank itself. I think that's my kind of base case as to how it would play out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then then it's kind of a kind of a attempt to create risk-free money. But what, what my problem is, is it kind of breaks the whole creation destruction cycle of money. Because if, for instance, for some reason, uh, I mean, it invites speculation, basically. Like if for some reason that person doesn't repay their loan, that's $50,000 that never leave the economy, or they would leave the economy via taxing the taxpayers and then destroy the money via taxes, which means it's a socialization of debt, essentially, to the whole society. So in any case, whenever you create money, if it's not destroyed on the other side, you have inflation invariably, because that's just money that's going to circulate forever in the economy, and it's not going to mirror the creation destruction of the goods and services in the economy. So whenever you create money way alone, it has to exit the economy in a certain way, like just get out of the economy as like the repayment plans. And so if you have the attempt of creating these kind of risk-free money and like, you know, prevent these whole banks of being bust because they they make bad loans, um, and it's actually um, a moral hazard in a way because you're encouraging banks to just speculate just like they did in 2008 on the value of, of mortgages or the value of, of real estate um, because they don't care. They don't have to bear the risk for that. Well, let me so, well, yeah. let me be clear. I'm not saying that this is optimal. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get you. Yeah, I get you. Great system. I, I think it will be completely destructive. And I think it will, I, if we think about 2020 and the amount of economic distortions we had with PPP and stimulus checks and lockdowns and everything else, I mean, a central bank digital currency, if you want to call it that, is just that on steroids. What If they're micromanaging, you know, who's getting a loan and who isn't and what their interest rate is and their underwriting, which is centralized, is now just being utilized by the commercial banks. And then they're extending that credit, not based on merit, but just based on political narrative. Yeah. Because they have an infinite balance sheet. <clears throat> they don't have to be paid back. If they create that $50,000 loan, you're right. If the person doesn't pay them back, does it affect their P&L? Sure. Who cares? They can have as much negative. We know damn well they can have negative equity because they've been printing negative equity as we speak in the form of remittance, uh, negative remittances to the treasury. The Jews have plugged in the hole in their balance sheet through, uh, what is the accounting gimmick they use? It's... I did a whiteboard video on this the other day. It's a deferred asset, if my memory serves me well. It's just this deferred asset, which is, again, an accounting gimmick, gimmick which shows us that there, there's no issue whatsoever with them having negative equity. And to your point, you know, if those dollars aren't being paid back, then that's going to increase on net balance, M2 money supply, which means more currency units chasing the same amount of goods and services and probably a less amount of goods and services if that lending isn't being done based on merit, but it's being done based on narrative, 
it's not going to productive purposes. It's most likely going to consumption. Yeah, totally. Uh, sorry for jumping in because uh, I have to be jumping out. And, uh, sure, it's hard to keep up uh, uh, with the conversation when you want to uh, just answer something that has been uh, 10 minutes ago, but I'll just jump sure. in to Martin. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, that uh, the creation of money um, will not change much uh, with the CBCs like the M1, uh, uh, M2, M3 stuff and uh, uh, retail banks and uh, the central bank stuff. I think it's more about interoperal uh, interoperability. And uh, what I really wanted to say is that uh, um, uh, George was talking about volatility um, that is uh, uh, in DeFi. Uh, so a large still and uh, may come down. But if you take all of crypto, like uh, within the last like three years, it has been hovering around uh, one to two, one to three trillion. Um, and uh, uh, there are a lot of countries in this world that have more than 30% uh, of inflation, but no uh, uh, upside potential for their uh, currencies. So, um, yeah, but they're, I think then they're but more in with the dollar though. Yeah, we need more adoption, yes, but uh, 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 also it is going to be taking some time when you just uh, 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 buy a coffee for, uh, uh, you know, within uh, uh, two seconds um, uh, uh, with uh, uh, your cryptocurrency, but um, um, but that's still better than paying uh, uh, fees for, uh, I don't know, Western Union sending some money home to your home country uh, and pay 10% or... Uh, pay two percent for the visa or master so i think it's uh uh um uh yeah about uh well uh you don't want to take uh uh, uh you know want to wait standing in line on uh, uh an exchange counter uh, for uh, some currencies uh at any airport or anything so um we're heading towards um uh, uh interoperability into cross-chain projects even with the CBDCs um, and uh, 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 putting stuff in DeFi, which means my, um, I think is uh, uh, the future and uh, um, the uh, countries and central banks are just uh, uh, trying to keep up. Um, yeah, that, I think that's a good point. Right. But I just, one thing I'd, I'd mention is I just got back from Istanbul where, as we all know, they've got extremely high rates of inflation. And I was very inquisitive with the people that I was coming in contact with as to how they were managing that situation in their personal lives. And almost every single one of them was just taking their lira and uh, any excess lira they had after their job and either buying dollars, euros, or gold. So, I, you know, even though you've got those countries that are experiencing those high rates of inflation, you're still competing with the network of the dollar. Not saying that it's that it's superior, just saying that that's still going to be a hurdle. Can, can I ask a, a question here, actually, with relates to crypto? Because there's one thing I don't understand. How do you create, how do you have a, a stable measuring stick with something like Bitcoin? Because, I mean, to my understanding, price stability is because the monetary mass basically expands and contracts at the same rhythm as the total available goods and services in the economy. But how do you get that with crypto? I just don't see how that works. I can answer that for you uh, because I've I've talked to so many people in the space. But uh, if, if there's a, a Bitcoin 
expert here. I'm happy to have them answer. Uh, 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 so I would, I would recommend uh, just ask Jesse. He's in the space, and also Frosty. He's in the space. I don't know if they've got their hands up, but uh, one comment is. You, you have heard, just like I have forever in the Bitcoin space, that one Bitcoin is equal to one Bitcoin. And yet one Bitcoin's purchasing power in dollar was at one time one penny. And, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer cash, this is a different system of settlement, uh, things like that might have been the narrative uh, in 2008 or nine. But really, most people participate in Bitcoin because it's a speculative mm -hmm. instrument. They really are just looking for gain. Uh, it, whatever the narrative is about it is a uh, store of value, uh, you can't really have store value when it goes down to 3,000 and goes up to 69,000 basically in 18 months. You just don't have that. So like the, the idea is that it is, uh, you know, I've heard so many times it's a leverage position on tech stocks and all of the derivatives of DeFi because of the linking between liquidity pairs and especially in decentralized exchanges, that those are leveraged positions on Bitcoin. So it's a lever on top of a lever on top of a lever, really because a lot of us are addicted to the gaming of finance. Uh, you, you, you commonly and often on stage talk about uh, this is undervalued or this is overvalued. You know, is this cheap or is this expensive? And those are true when enough people are looking at the same reference. Bitcoin just happens to be a reference in the crypto space. And other things are saying, oh, it's this many Satoshi this value uh, in my, you know, that's the way I take away the, the, the gaming of the crypto space. Yeah. I think the way they may articulate it, Martin, is if 12 inches, if there's 12 inches in a foot today, we want 12 inches in a foot tomorrow. So I think your point would be, okay, well, if you've got a fixed money supply and you, let's say as a result of having that fixed money supply, hypothetically, you have consumer price deflation. Well, yep. then that means that tomorrow there's going to be 11 inches in a foot. So why is that better than tomorrow there being 13 inches in a foot? It's still different. It's still not 12 inches in a foot. And their rebuttal would be, well, we're not, when we're talking about 12 inches in a foot, we're not talking about the prices of goods and services. We're simply talking about the money supply itself. And if there's a fixed money supply, then if we do have an, uh, a, a consumer price increase or consumer price decrease, that's going to be a result of market forces, strictly of market forces. And therefore, it's going to be more desirable. Yeah, I'm, yeah okay, I get it. Yeah, well, is this somebody trying to answer? Yes, yeah, so I was just gonna. There's, there's one, the another part of this topic that is the term stablecoin itself, and this is where I think that we see regulation involved with stablecoins, and it's because they don't look at stablecoins and even use the term the same way we do in crypto. So in crypto, we look at stablecoins again, as George put out, as inches and a foot. They're a tool of denomination as a unit of account. We think of them just as a tool that we're using for the rest of the ecosystem to function. But that's not how central banks and legacy see, see them. So if you actually look at the definitions they actually use in the UK, Australia, the US, when they say stablecoin, they mean something very particular. And what they mean is USDC, USDT, BUSD, these issuers where they're used in treasury bonds and different types of commercial paper along with actual currency to back up and be a centralized issuer of the currency of USDC or USDT. 
So when they're looking at stablecoin regulations, that's what they're talking about. And it's because that issuance can affect the actual money supply and they see it as dollars in an ecosystem at which these things are moving around and they don't have control over that. That's different than the function of how most of us think of stable coins, which is inches to a foot. We're looking for some stable unit of account to be able to move value around because one BTC is one BTC, but that doesn't mean it's the same for a chicken or a water or a coffee the following day. So the regulation is around centralized issued and fiat or commercial backed stable coins. Whereas there's things like Rye, Dai, LUSD that are still stable coins the way we think of them, but aren't backed by central issuers and use different collateralization forms of other digital assets to basically give us a denomination that's pegged to another currency because it's the same issue with gold. So even though if gold is stable and this sound money, I still would have to sit there and change the price of everything revolving around gold. And it's hard to use that as an account. Whereas if I, if I say use gold as a back of a coin, say to back a dollar the way it used to be, then a dollar is just a representation of the amount of gold that I can pull out and that can change, but it still gives us stability. So there'll be stable coins that are used collateralization and you can use the same thing with Bitcoin. And that's the way that you can issue a dollar's worth of Bitcoin in a stable fashion that one doesn't cause regulatory compliance issues and cause you to fight with jurisdictions. And you don't have to essentially have that growth of size to give you stability. So you use it from decentralized protocols and collateralization to give you that unit of account. And that again, also removes these other issues and allows CBDCs to replace these private institutions that are essentially stepping on their toe. So it, I think that the CBDC versus stablecoin battle is between things like Circle, BlackRock, Paxos, uh, and Tether, not from just stable denominations that we can use in crypto. So I think that separation, one explains where the regulation comes from, but also on how to solve both those problems. Yeah, but but correct me if I'm wrong, Walworth, the, the Bitcoin maxi argument is that the, the 12 inches in a, a foot is pertaining to the money supply. And we want the money supply to stay the same every single day and just let prices be what they may. Correct. And that's a that's a, a bit of a utopian view of my point. And I, I agree with that, but you can that's where you can have that separation of the store of value and money. So you can maintain all that property in the store of value and a BTC itself. And then you use it use the collateralization to offer out the unit of account that can be that can be denominated in whatever fine. So you can have a Euro's worth of BTC keep all those BTC principles. And if you're the one who is actually holding the collateral the same way as if you hold a home or anything else, then if you're affected by the currency controls and the inflation, if you're holding the holding the collateral as well, then you're sort of delta neutral on any pricing model or against a contraction or expansion of the supply, but it still gives you that unit of account to be able to do commerce. Yeah, I, understand. I, I was just trying to explain to Martin what, what the, the argument on that yep. side might be so he could better understand it when he kind of has dialogue with the Bitcoin maxi folks. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you, George, have uh, some knowledge about this, but I mean, historically speaking, if you look at gold and using gold or actually metal currency in Europe, um, it actually did cap the amount of growth. I mean, like growth was basically limited until they resorted to like debt and banking with interest. And especially the supply of that metal money did create a lot of economic havoc. Like for instance, when Spain 
uh, took back a lot of the gold that it that it seized in Latin America and brought it to Europe, it created mass inflation for gold. So the supply of money does completely distort economics. And I think even in modern history, if you look at certain countries like um, the former French colonies, which operate under the France CFA, which is like a French kind of franc special kind of currency, um, they didn't have their own um, uh, monetary policies. And their growth was also capped artificially because uh, they had to sort of, um, you know, match or the, the money supply was sort of capped uh, as opposed to other countries where they could issue more debt or have more interest and things like that. So I think I think we this is like this idea of having like a fixed currency. Historically, it doesn't play out that well. I mean, from, from what has happened in history before. I don't know how it will think- play out in the future, but... I think the argument you're going to get there, Martin, is just going to be one of costs and benefits that you're going to continually talk about the costs of a fixed money supply, and they're just going to continually talk about the benefits, and you guys will just kind of talk over one another. (laughs) 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 That kind of dialogue will will, will play out. And uh, it it is an interesting thought experiment. Uh, that's, That's for sure. One thing I can tell, and I don't know the experience in Europe, but I do know the history in the United States. And in the 1800s, we had a gold standard for much of the 1800s. And we had something called free banking. So the, there was no central bank. There was no, really, not really any government control in the banking system um, until we kind of got outside of the Civil War. But... Um, the banks were able to create their own banknotes and, you know, the people would deposit their gold to the bank. And uh, so the free market, the demand by consumers really dictated whether we had a full reserve system or we had, it would most likely be far more stable, or we had a fractional reserve system that may be uh, beneficial to the standpoint of an elastic money supply, like you were saying. But it also may have some of the drawbacks of adding to the probability of a boom-bust cycle. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I don't know how, you know, I, again, it's, I think we should be debating the costs and benefits here for sure. But what I can tell you is that in the 1800s, when we had no government involvement whatsoever, the general public themselves chose fractional reserve banking. They mm-hmm. chose fractional. So why would they do this? Because the fractional reserve banks were able to offer a higher interest rate. So the people said, well, if it's still backed by gold, if I can still trade my banknotes in for gold, I would rather have my wealth stored at this bank and get a higher interest rate than this other one that's full reserve because it's still the same. I'm still getting my gold for my banknotes, but yet they're only yeah. charging, they're only paying me two and a half percent, or this other guy is paying me five percent. So in that world, we, we saw how the free market played out, and I'm not saying it would play out this way in the future, but I'm saying it definitely played out that way in the past. And um, another thing that I think is interesting there is that in the from 1870 to around 1900, ju- without the central banks, without the government, without any of this stuff, you had the M2, no, they did have national banks, but you did have a competing group of uh, entities, you had the money supply as measured by M2 go up by 400%. And I think what's fascinating is from 1990 
to 2020 in a world of complete fiat, complete fiat, the M2 money supply for the same span of years went up the exact same amount by 400%. Hmm. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. It now the, uh, inflation rate was wildly different. So at the end of the 1800s, although we had that increase of M2 by 400%, inflation compounded was negative 45%. Whereas in the United States from 1990 to 2020, with that same M2 increase, you had an inflation rate of about 125%. So that right. throws in a lot of other variables other than just an increase in M2, and that's a whole completely separate Twitter spaces. Yeah. Fascinating. Thanks a lot. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's see. I think uh, we've got this gentleman just as has been, uh, or just asked Jesse. Okay, let's add him as a speaker. All right, Jesse, thanks for waiting, buddy. What are your thoughts? So dollars are infinite liquidity, right? So it's interesting because no matter how how much inflation uh, you might see from it, um, you can pretty much anywhere in the world spend it however you want to. If you had enough economic energy, you can buy a billion dollars worth of bicycles, right? Um, and the guy next door, if he had enough economic energy, he can take it downtown and he can buy all the buildings downtown. And it doesn't necessarily affect uh, the way that the dollar is measured. The dollar um, you know, value, how much purchasing power it has, is simply directly affected by uh, the inflation, the, the centralization, the, the governments that just inflate it. Right now in crypto, it's not the same way, right? Bitcoin is massive, right? It is the biggest crypto in existence, right? Because it was the first big player to uh, really get some traction. But even that doesn't have infinite liquidity. You are limited by the amount of value that people have brought in with their dollars. And how much of that is remaining in order books and in automated market makers and so on and so forth, right? So even if you see something that says, hey, this thing has a trillion dollar market cap, well, that doesn't really mean that you can actually spend and and move um, a trillion dollars of it before it goes all the way back down to what funded that thing to begin with, like all the way back down to uh, near zero or a dollar or whatever, because it's right now, it's all speculation still. Every like 99.9% of all crypto is simply people bringing money in because they believe that that crypto will outperform their dollars. A dollar in, somewhere else, somebody can take a dollar back out. And that's also the unit of measure that everyone's using. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to replace the dollar. Um, you know, I think history has shown that money and power do become more centralized over time, right? So I don't think that something even like Bitcoin um, is ever going to replace uh, uh, the actual fiat dollars. Now, you can mimic the value 
of a fiat dollar, but you'll never be able to replace it. Um, people get so scared also. People are so scared of CBDCs. They think it's going to make, you know, what's it actually going to do to crypto? Like you said, George, earlier, um, like it's just an accounting method. That's all it is. Um, ACH transfers, how long do they take? You know, in the United States, they take, I think, three to seven days for uh, transactions to clear. You know, crypto has shown that you can clear transactions near instantly, right? I think, you know, governments desire that. I think there's probably some, um, you know, audit abilities that they'll be able to have, instant taxes, instant audibility, auditability of things. Uh, if you remember like the Bernie Madoff days, he was operating in fiat dollars off of ledgers that he just created out of thin air. And when people asked him for, you know, to sh show his ledgers, he just showed him fake stuff, right? And he got away with it for a number of years. And this is actually the problem in the current technology of, um, you know, fiat. All these different institutions have their own um, ledgers that they're able to use. Um, and then you have a central clearinghouse that has to kind of almost uh, audit all these things, so to speak. And wouldn't it be nice for a government to be able to audit that stuff instantly? Now, the people in crypto don't necessarily need to fear that because I don't think that they're after shutting down Bitcoin, you know, shutting down Ethereum. I think they're after the technology. Um, like Walrus said, you know, you hear these terms uh, from uh, the re regulatory language of uh, stable coins. They're after very specific things. Banks that are issuing value off of a fiat dollar that they've taken in. Is that any different than what they've done for 100 years? No. If you have your money in a bank, that bank has all sorts of rules and regulations they have to abide by. So if they're going to take a fiat dollar and then give you something, a representation of that, such as a USDC or a Tether, a USDT or something, a stable coin, um, shouldn't those types of stable coins be subject to the same rules that they're already following? If they're going to claim that it's backed by a fiat dollar, well, they're going to have to follow the rules of the fiat dollar, right? It doesn't necessarily apply um, to decentralized things like Walrus said, like Rye, like Dai, like LUSD and some others. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think we should fear CBDCs. I actually think it'll bring a lot of volume into crypto for people who are speculating in the crypto space if these things have some interoperability. Now, there is centralization risk, right? Um, you know, with government things comes government control and the ability to shut things down. Um, if you're not doing anything illegal, unethical, immoral, or anything like that, perhaps you have nothing to worry about, right? But if these things are interoperable with our current crypto space, we could actually see quite a big boom of people having an easier on-ramp process into the decentralized things over time. Yeah, so I think you know you had several trains of thought there, but first and foremost, I think without a shadow of a doubt, there's going to be some additional efficiencies and lower costs with a central bank digital currency. And again, I hate to use that word because we're not 
there is no money. So we're not really changing the currency. We're just using a different, you know, more consolidated ledger network and then some different software. But yeah, to your point, definitely some efficiencies there that could uh, do a lot of beneficial things. But I could argue that having a dictator for life could offer several efficiencies as well because we wouldn't have to make short-term decisions for these politicians to get reelected. Uh, you know, we could plan for the long-term. You could have all of these arguments as to why it would be superior to have a dictatorship, but that comes with risk. So then what you have to ask yourself is, are the, the risks worth the potential reward? And I think, you know, people are going to have different opinions on that. Uh, I would say, just me personally, that the risks far, far, far outweigh the reward or the efficiencies because I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that as government or the central bank, whatever, expands its power, and you have to admit that by increasing these efficiencies, they would also be massively expanding their power. It's going to attract the exact type of person that you don't want running the system because if it you can you can imagine if this entity has a massive amount of power it's going to attract individuals who have an insatiable lust to power to to power and to rule over other individuals so it's probably not going to attract the person that is the benevolent dictator or the philosopher king. <laughs> now it could, it could, but I think the probability of that, especially over time, is incredibly low. So even if you get someone in there that is has a moral north star, <clears throat> give it give it a couple years. But would would you agree? I've got a question for you. But would you agree that because we continue to use a fiat dollar as our measuring stick? that generally speaking that's almost like saying we're okay with that bitcoin's been around for quite you know what 15 years now and the measuring stick against it is still the dollar oh yes now yeah don't get me wrong i think that the average joe and average jane is is going to be all for it they're going to be like central i can get a higher they're not going to know you know central bank digital currency they're just going to say what i can put my account with the Fed and get a higher interest rate. They're going to give me UBI. And you know, what's not to like? This is fantastic. It's more efficient. I don't have to pay for cross-border payments. And if I transfer money to my buddies in Mexico, it happens instantaneously. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And it's just going to be us, you know, old guys yelling at the clouds. <laughs> They're saying, whoa, 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 time out. You don't understand you're doing a deal with the devil. And you know, when, when will people wake up to that? Will they ever wake up to that? I, I don't know. It takes me back to 2020. And one of the things that absolutely shocked me is that the government really didn't have to force people to lock down. Like they not only did it willingly, but they, in, in a lot of states and a lot of people, demanded that the government lock them in a cage, right? I mean, they, they, they literally 
were saying, politician, don't allow me to walk my dog on the beach and don't allow anyone else out of their jail cell. And if you do, I'm going to vote you out of office. That's the level of insanity. So to think that that level of insanity won't transfer over to a central bank digital currency, I think you're, you're, you're just kidding yourself. But I do, I want to leave some room for optimism. Um, in, in my conversation that I had with Mike Green the other day, one of the things that we definitely agreed on is that in this age of the internet and Twitter and social media, it's got a lot of drawdowns. It's got a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of negative consequences, but it offers us a platform to try to persuade people and try to educate people as to the dangers of allowing the government to just take all your freedom just for the sake of safety, or in this case, for the sake of efficiency or some quote unquote free money. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm out there on YouTube every single day and kind of shouting at whoever will listen is to try to hopefully move the needle there. So, and I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm right and everyone else is wrong, but I just, I really want to encourage just the average Joe and Jane that knows nothing about this stuff. It's just solely focused on taking their kid to school, taking them to the soccer game and having some beers on the weekends with their buddies watching football. I'm trying to, 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 to make sure that person is at least going through the cost benefit analysis in their mind so that we've got a chance of having an open debate here and, and maybe creating a system that isn't so receptive to falling under the control of some sort of tyrannical psychopath. And um, the, the good news there is I think the government can push to a point where the average Joe does get engaged. As an example, you know, when they came out with the vaccine mandates, that that's something that I was highly, highly, highly against. And I couldn't believe that people in New York and whatnot were actually going for that. They were saying, oh, yes, you know, force me to inject some foreign substance into my body so I can go into a restaurant or force me to do that just so I can keep my job. I mean, my, I, I, it completely blew my mind. But what was interesting is when did that pretty much stop? It's when the government came in and not only said that you as an adult have to do that or your job or whatever. But now your kids have to do it. Now you're one-year-old, you're two-year-old, you're three-year-old. That's when I think the average Joe and Jane said, whoa, 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 I'm out. You can force me to do this for my job, but you're not going to force my kid to do this. And that's when they got engaged. So I think there is a tipping point but with the central bank digital currency, hopefully it's not too late to where we can get off that road to serfdom, which I think this inevitably leads. And I could be wrong. And I could be wrong. I, can I, I think that it'll fall closer to your end of the spectrum. But I think if you want to make the, the optimism case and the difference between, say, vaccine mandates or any of these lockdown protocols, emergency powers of, of you know a variety of different metrics they use to to apply that control. The difference would be that here, because this is like an economic policy and because there's so much more freedom of, well, there was at times, right? Freedom of movement that hopefully for, you know, it, it takes a lot of average people to make up for one George Gammon, one funding Jim, one Jesse, one Martin that moves away from a jurisdiction. 
So you would hope that at least in some ways we would be able to push back against some of these different policies by trying to make there be jurisdictional competitiveness. So like California is getting crushed by the exodus of people that have, have value. And when it comes to most of these tax systems, when you really break them down, it's, it's a very small percentage of people that pay that Pareto distribution excess amount of the value. So if they're, again, they're harder to tax. I think in some ways, again, if you want to make the optimism case, it would be that those of us can actually move away, can move a much more substantial amount of that value rather than say a one-to-one vote or one-to-one petition that we, we can hopefully by having some mobility and, you know, avenues like, you know, Puerto Rico up here in the U S um, you know, or even state to state, hopefully by trying to move that value around and that sort of fungibility of the actual people holding the value, then you can make that competitiveness enough to push back against some of that regulation. But again, I think we'll fall closer to your end. I'm just trying to make the optimism case. No, I'm much more optimistic about the state's competitiveness than I am for individuals just packing up and, and leaving the country. And the example I always use is, is Puerto Rico. You know, that, that's a place that right now American citizens can pay zero tax or, you know, 4% max on, on a business income or whatever it is now. And yes, there are a lot of people that have taken advantage of that, but look at the, the amount of people that have gone there relative to the 350 million people that live in the United States or whatever the number is, as far as the top 5% that would benefit from that type of tax structure. It's a minuscule, <clears throat> minuscule amount. <laughs> Why? Because there's things that matter to people above and beyond taxes or above and beyond the, the, the tyrannical government that may or may not come. And, uh, you know, family, their, their network, their local golf course, the country club, the kids are in school, yada, yada, yada. So I do think it's a much easier uh, lift for people to move from California to Texas than it would be for people to move from California to El Salvador or, or something like that. Yep. Okay, so let's let me, let me get up... Go ahead. Why don't you go ahead and keep yeah. speaking, and then we've got this gentleman who's been waiting, so I'm going to add him as a speaker so he can give some input as soon as you're done. Yeah, I just I just wanted to sort of, uh, you know, lead on to the, the conversation where we stopped with uh, CBDCs and maybe recontextualize things and, and see it from a broader perspective. Like, where does it sit in terms of, like, the history of our development of humanity? I, I posted a tweet, actually, in the conversation. You can check a presentation I've done on this, but... Um, it's this idea that maybe we haven't created anything very special, that if we look at a universal experience that we all have all gone through, it's like a template for explaining everything that's happening. So we've all grown as an organism from baby, child, teenager, and then young adult. And to me, we're just blindly replicating that same kind of pattern with relations to society and its relationship with an external authority, which is a government, which is kind of like a symbolic parent to humanity or to society. So if you look at like early tribal structures, their relationship to whatever government or, you know, head of state was the same as a baby to its parents. Like everything was magical, everything was mystical, you know, and all these kind of things. And then if you look at the relationship of a child to its parents, it's the same as society to kings and queens. Like a child basically sees himself as, you know, created in the image of his parents, but he doesn't have the same powers. He admires his parents. Parents have a life and death kind of, you know, 
a power over their child. They decide everything. So they're very frustrated. Um, and and then a teenager's relationship to the parents is the same as society to representative democracy, basically, because now we desacralized our governments. They're no longer we don't no longer admire them. We like to criticize them. We find faults with them and all that stuff. That's the typical attitude of a teenager. A teenager also wants more autonomy from his parents. So, you know, all the protests and all that stuff to get civil rights, economic rights, social rights, all that stuff is also the same pattern we've replicated on the outside. And typically also a teenager doesn't like to take responsibility. So when shit hits the fan, you know, he runs to his parents and, you know, for shelter and doesn't take responsibility. And that's what you were saying with, you know, when the COVID hit, everybody kind of rallied behind daddy, the state to know what they're supposed to do because, you know, society as a collective is still a teenager. But then, you know, if some of you have kids, you know that what happens next is at some point, the teenager grows into a young adult and leaves the parents to experience with his autonomy. And that symbolically to me is represented by blockchain, which is, which carries the potential for self-governance. That is a way of managing society without having to have this centralized intermediary, which is the government. And with Klaus Schwab and all of these governments that are trying to tighten control or the grip, you know that some parents, when their teen is about to leave home, they're sort of in a panic. They're like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my status as a parent. I won't be able to control them anymore. Oh my God, he can't do his laundry. He can't cook for himself. He has to stay home. And then they're trying to like tighten their grip on the kid, restricting the pocket money, you know, controlling how they spend their money, controlling where they eat when they get home and all that stuff. And that's exactly what's playing out to me with the governments today, which are trying to sort of stifle this kind of thing because they're panicked about, you know, what their new status is going to be once the cat's out. And actually, you know, you have communities that manage to function in a self-governed way without the need for the state to intervene. And you can project these kinds of patterns of fractals into plenty of different events, uh, including the, the pandemic, including Bitcoin, everything. Um, and it just makes much more sense in that sense, because we're actually going somewhere and there is a pattern to this and it's, we're not just advancing blindly. And obviously there are a million ways that, you know, a teenager uh, reaches independence from his parents. Um, and it can be like with a slamming the door and saying, I'm never going to see you again, or it can be very smooth and all that stuff. But this is just the pattern that's playing out to me. Yeah, I just think our, our parents aren't trying to keep us teenagers. They're trying to make us revert back to... Being children. <laughs> I'd say toddlers, not children. <laughs> I get you, I get you. I appreciate it. Okay, so we've got uh, Jim Rat Crypto. My friend, yes. Yeah, I just came out for Martin. If he was when he's not speaking, if he could mute his mic because we could all hear him, and it was very annoying. And I'm not. Oh. I just want because I was listening and I was really enjoying the conversation. Not it wasn't that bad. I just wanted to let him know we could hear him in the background. Okay. okay sorry. Sorry about that. Okay. Cool. So then we've got Trevor is next. Let's get him up here. Okay. Yeah. Just as an entry, uh, Trevor is a good friend of mine, and he handles a lot of e-commerce and he's also a puerto rico guy so he might comment about act 20 and so forth as well great trevor what's on your mind buddy hey george how are you man we did all right i'm well thank you good good little background on me man i'm uh uh you know we've never spoke or met but uh, gary's a, a dear friend of mine anyway yeah man i'm from nashville i've uh, been in the entrepreneur you know circuit for a while and kind of got 
thrown into this crypto stuff a little while back. And, and I, I don't know, man, I just, uh, I am an act, uh, you know, a Puerto Rico guy. Um, I, I bounce back and forth between the states and everything. And you're right, man. It's 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 a. Uh, and forgive me if I just bounce around on topics. By the way, guys, I just joined in. <laughs> so, uh, but one of the things you said earlier about, um, you know, being, uh, you know, you've got two hundred, however many million people in the United States. Not all of them can fit in Puerto Rico and make these kind of moves, right? But I think there's a couple of things to digest here. One being that through COVID and all that kind of stuff, what we saw, you know, cause I was one of those people that I have business right down downtown Nashville. You can walk right in. Our offices are right there. Uh, you know, I was asked to close. I said, no, it ain't happening. I made sanitizer readily available for everybody, did the whole dance and everything, but we didn't close. And, and through that, I think I, I, uh, you know, I, I had friends that were my, even myself in crypto, seeing the crypto boom after COVID people migrated to self-custody, you know? And I think that, and I think that self-custody, you know, and I'm on these spaces all the time, George, like I, it, it, a lot of times we just, we get too far into the onion, you know, whenever you got to zoom out. And I think that this is obviously my personal opinion in regards to CBDCs and all that, just whatever, you know, DeFi or decentralization just in general, I think is the next, uh, is the next wave, you know, people understanding that you can keep self-custody and and sure, is it a, is is it a a cat and mouse game with the government? Absolutely, I'm a living proof of it right now. And uh, you know, but one thing we learned through COVID was that whenever shit hit the hits the fan like that, I think that we can uh, that we we witnessed a lot of people migrate into self custody and realize I can't trust the government, I can't trust the banks, they don't have my money, you know, and then also kind of shifting the narrative that debt is bad. You know, and so, yeah, and Trevor, I think we also need to compartmentalize the probabilities of crypto or Bitcoin just becoming a better and better digital asset or store of value and then becoming global currency and taking over the dollar. I agree. Because those are two completely separate and set of probabilities, and a lot of times they're conflated as one. I 100% agree, and I think that there are also two phases in life that are upcoming. So I think we're going to see a, fee, a, see a massive CBDC uh, uh, bank run. We're already seeing the beginning phases of it. But what we are going to see is just like all, everything that is good ends up being bad. You know, like, for example, this chat AI thing is now all woke, you know. It was really cool when it came out, now it's woke. When CBDCs become really popular... There are going to be many men and women, you know, like a lot of people listening, myself included, who are not going to participate in that, you know, and we're going to look for, uh, uh, especially, we're going to look for, for different bridges and specifically how can I bridge my asset over here where it has still has value and I can, you know, uh, call Gary up and, and buy something from Gary, you know, with that asset, you know, without being interrupted and self-custody. And I think it's going to come in phases, but part one is probably going to be that, hey, we're the CBDC, we're Bank of America, and you see a commercial, check out our CB, download our wallet, you know, and wait, and that's that's the good phase, but wait till people start to wake up. And I think that this this entire phase is probably within about a five to 10 year plan, maybe 10 to 15 years. The thing is, is that a lot of people in crypto are not like you and myself, traditional investors. Uh, the people in crypto you know, sadly are used to a five minute turnaround on their ROI. <laughs> and so, and, 
And, and, and so it's very important that in regards to like having these conversations about CBDCs is to understand number one, the phases that we're going to go through. And number two, that ultimately it is a chase to hold your own assets. And it, and that's the beauty of cryptocurrency. Uh, a lot of the people that I follow in this, in this, this specific community, uh, you know, talk about how, uh, you know, crypto was invented to remove the middleman. And we just witnessed that with Sam Bankman Freed, FTX, with the, 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 the shit that happens when, when you trust others with your funds and the CBDC thing, you know, I think that they, the, uh, we're going to see different, uh, on and off ramps and different bridges come because it, it's once again, George, it's just, it's a massive cat and mouse game. But for me, I think in the, the, the medium to long term. Um, and until then I'll, I'll participate in the cat and mouse game. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think if someone is looking at Bitcoin or cryptocurrency from a standpoint of a digital asset, like we said, it's different than if you're looking at it from a standpoint of transacting daily and trying to exit the system because you are not in favor of a central bank digital currency for all the obvious reasons, all the 1984 stuff. And, and beyond. And it, I, I know you're new to the conversation, Trevor. What we were saying earlier is, or what we we're discussing is kind of my base case as to how they may roll this out. And I was talking about during the next crisis, assuming we have one, that instead of doing quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve is buying assets off the bank's balance sheets, now they're just relieving them of their liabilities, their commercial deposit liabilities, or their customer live uh, deposits that are commercial bank liabilities and so you have this different type of bailout in which case you could see this sudden shift of dollars or, or money if you want to call it that retail money moving from the balance sheets of the commercial banking system onto the balance sheet of the federal reserve and because we're not talking about because n no money exists we went over that early no dollars exist no euros no yen all they are are just numbers on a spreadsheet. That's it. So if we have a central bank digital currency, it's not going to differ at all from the quote-unquote dollar we have now. But what's going to change is it's going to be consolidated onto one ledger or a, a, a fewer ledgers within the network. And then there's going to be software that's going to be incorporated into that ledger along with the point of sale that will allow the Federal Reserve, the central planners, the authoritarians, to monitor your transactions and therefore give you some sort of social score or a carbon score and, and really influence the demand side of the equation. And then also uh, the lending, you know, individual monetary policy and whatnot. So my point there is if this transition happens, not overnight, but over the span of a week or a month or something like that, for the majority of those dollars, those retail dollars become liabilities of the Federal Reserve, you can, you could be in a scenario where your day-to-day -day is, you have the option of, do I want to play ball with the CBDC and maintain my lifestyle, just buy food, buy groceries, buy all these things, or do I want to completely live off grid and, and be in a small community of people that are farmers just to provide my food and my, my, my daily necessities to where your standard of living, especially if you're an entrepreneur guy that moved to Puerto Rico, would most likely decline by about 
So I, I'm not saying that that's how it's going to play out. I'm saying that is a possibility. And if and if you want to stick to your guns, then and, and completely unplug from the CBDC, I, I would start planning now as to how you could make that happen without having to take a huge hit to your standard of living. And again, that's assuming we're looking at it from a transactional side. That's your priority and not just holding a digital asset as a store of value that's outside of the system. I fully agree, man. Yeah, I fully agree. The the like ex- the idea of exchanging funds, that's a really technical one. And honestly, the the you know, the truth is is it's going to be a bumpy road and you're going to have guys like me who you know, uh, out of my pie chart of participation, there's going to be a small sliver here and there that is participating still because I'm, like you said, eggs, bread, milk, whatever you need, you know, they're going to somehow gatekeep these general necessities, right? And and I think the average guy like my, myself, you, who it doesn't really matter, we're going to in some way have to participate in the same way we do now. So if I want to buy something here on the island and I take some of my USDC, I send it through what? Coinbase to turn it into fiat, you know? And, and, and it's, I am participating in an unfortunately the system at that point. But what Trevor, when you say fiat, let's be super specific here and you don't have to name oh, you're bank, good. But, yeah, but it's probably Banco Popular or something like that. But so when you say you turn that into fiat, what you're saying is you just increase the number in your checking deposit or your checking account, so then you can go ahead and buy the the eggs or whatever. That's you exactly eat. right. That's how. That's how. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And just, so just so you understand that in that world that I'm referring to, when you made that move into fiat, let's just say Banco Popular, uh, that would be a move instead of onto Banco Popular's balance sheet or their ledger. That would be a move directly to the Fed to their balance sheet. So when you did go to the store to buy the eggs and the groceries you need, the Fed would know every single thing that you bought. So let's say that you bought too much steak based on your monthly allocation, because we all know that's terrible for the environment. Then they could cut you off at a certain level and say, oh, no, Trevor, now you you bought your allocation of steak for the month. Now you've got to wait till the first of the of next month to buy more steak, now the only thing you can buy at the local Fresh Mart is vegetables or or mealworms. Right. And I th- <laughs> whatever they want you to buy. So I, I just I just wanted to explain that so because I think it's important that people understand how that plumbing would work. So they know how they could uh, successfully unplug from the system if that's what they wanted to do. Totally. hundred percent, man. It's like I said, it is going to be a uh a wild cat and mouse game. And I think that creating new identities is going to be the coolest, most hottest thing at that point so that you can switch over and just be like, well, that identity, that identity got banned. Okay. I'll just go get a new passport. I'll get a new, and I'll call my guy in Florida. You know what I mean? So, Mm. um, that's a good point that you're right there. Like all centralization and all, you know, authoritarian regimes, you always see black markets pop up and I'm sure there's going to be a black market or at least an effort for a black market workaround to have two separate accounts, so two separate, let's say, social security numbers. 
Uh, I'm not condoning. No, it's going to be the high thing. But I just try to think this through. So if you buy too much meat or if you want to buy more meat in a month than they're allowing, you can just do that with your secondary account. That, uh, or, you know, you could probably buy credits. That's what will probably happen is if you know if one of your bud buddies is a vegetarian and they never buy beef, you can just pay them to buy beef for you. And then that's probably what will happen. There'll probably be Facebook communities or communities online where they're, they're kind of bartering, where this one guy wants to buy more uh, whiskey for the month or more diesel fuel, and he's not allowed to. So someone else in the community will say, hey, I can buy more diesel fuel, but I can't buy more beef. And that guy says, hey, I can buy more beef. So I'll buy your diesel fuel, you buy my beef, and then we'll just trade. And I'll bet you that's kind of what will naturally pop up as well. And that's exactly right. And so now going back to my original statement or topic or whatever what I brought in in regards to the rat race being at two full phases on the CBDC initial rollout, yeah, it's going to be like, oh my God, big bad devil's here, whatever. Then you're going to have hood rats like myself who can be professional, but also a little gangster at times. And I'm going to figure it out. I promise you. Because crypto was invented to remove the middleman, period, end of story. And so at some point, we're going to see phase two, which is, a, which is a revolt. And then when, and I believe that the narrative of a new identity is going to be a good narrative of protecting yours, your, na your natural identity, your God-given or born identity. I think that it's going to be, it's not going to be like, for example, I can't sit here and say, hey guys, you should call your local friend and go get a new identity, right? That's illegal. Um, however, you're, uh, this is phase two of all of this within a 10 to 15 year span of time after rollout, we'll get to that. Where do you have, how many, how many accounts do you have? We already are there right now. How many off ramps do, you know, I've got friends that have uh, made, you know, uh, half a billion dollars in crypto and then they can't even off ramp it, uh, off ramp it. And they have to have multiple, multiple accounts because the bank just keeps asking questions. Where'd you get the money from? And then they'll cut them off, you know? So. I, I think this is uh, this is you know phase two of this is definitely going to be one of 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 uh, harboring tight and very close to your 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 genuine identity right that your parents gave you, and then also creating more and and when that happens that is a form of revolt which give it another five to six years the system will probably generate some new COVID and then after that cycle remember all of life is an S curve. After that cycle, I believe, is when we will see um, kind of that, what we would all love to see, which is a utopia way of thinking of, of, of you, everyone can exchange in some form freely, you know? So I am, yeah, I'm, well, I'm going to kind of fourth turning time. Yeah, man. Hey, listen, like I said, I think, uh, I don't think in little, little time frames, but I am going to uh, step down as a speaker, Jordan. It, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Gary's a dear friend of mine. And if you're ever on the Island, I've got dinner, man. So. <laughs> all right thanks, all right Trevor. talk to you soon, yeah. yeah all right so i know chris was there i'd love to get chris's now nah, it looks like he's not here anymore tracy's here tracy let me invite her to the speaker see if she's got some insights here she's always great with the energy space so i'll invite her i invited you tracy if you want to come up feel free if not no problem i wanted to get mcintosh up here but okay let's move on we've got the next person that requested was uh, Atticus. Let's bring him up. Okay, Atticus, what's on your mind? Are you there? 
Oh, how you doing? I'm doing well. Awesome. I'm a big fan. I've, I've really enjoyed your YouTube content. Uh, very informative. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for letting me come up. So I just wanted to maybe make a point about CBDCs from another perspective. So we've talked about, where I've heard you guys talking about, you know, the threats that CBDCs pose, but there's another way to think of it as well, is what about the threat that it poses to the the, the people that actually want to roll it out to the populace, right? So, you know, we some people have talked about interoperability and, you know, what let's talk about what crypto is in general. It's open source technology that basically teaches people how to take custody. So there's, there's autonomy. There's people stepping out of tr traditional finance into this decentralized world, right? So let's say the CBDCs do unroll. Well, it'll lend some some credibility to to a lot of the people that aren't in in cryptocurrency yet. A lot of the capital will flow in, but you're also basically substantiating the concept of open source technology, peer to peer self custody. So there's actually a threat to the government. So that it's I see it almost as like you know this technology exists. And it's it's in and the degree to which we will utilize the technology is proportional to the amount of force that the government's going to put on us with with their centralization and their control, right? So, if they have interoperability and we sanctify the concept of open source technology, we have an out. This has never existed. It's such a major breakthrough and in innovation in the human condition that all of a sudden we can defend ourselves so you know they have technologies and i look at these things as like an arms race almost where you know they're they're developing the technologies of control and surveillance and cryptography is basically developed is like being developed as the defense right and these two things are like a check it's you know you could even think of it as you know we have enumerated powers in the constitution you have a second amendment that kind of is like a check on power well, the adoption and the ability to use cryptography is actually a check on too much power. So it's a threat to them as well, because we have an out and all, there's never going to be perfect decentralization. There's never going to be a perfect technology, but if we can get the concept across to enough people where they're, they have crypto, they have self-custody, they're willing to say no when the day comes, when the government oversteps, and then we use that peer-to-peer and -peer open source technology and we carve them out then that's going to be a better world. So we want a world where there are aspects of centralizations because there are reasons to have centralizations for efficiency, but we want to have the check on that and the ability to walk away should that power get corrupting. And that's the innovation of cryptocurrency. So I just wanted to bring it from that perspective. I'm very optimistic about the future and the, and I really think the cat's out of the bag and they can't stop this technology. So thank you for letting me speak. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for your input. My my concern there, and it makes total sense, but my concern is, again, unplugging out of the system at what cost? Because, and, it may, and hopefully, hopefully, I think we all agree here, that the cost will dramatically decrease over time. But right now, we know the cost of unplugging from the system as it is would be absolutely immense unless you enjoyed the lifestyle of just living off the land and then then it would you know probably wouldn't affect your lifestyle too much or just living off grid or something like that but for most people that would be a pretty tough hit and that's what it would require if you wanted to completely unplug and and go the the, the direction of that competitive or alternative uh, network in the form of cryptocurrency but I'm just, I don't want to 
throw uh, water on your idea. I just want to be realistic. And hopefully, hopefully, uh, the cost of moving off the current system with the central planners and the authoritarians will be dramatically reduced in a short period of time. And, you know, ironically enough, the harder they push, probably the faster we'll get there. And it'll it'll mean more suffering in the interim. But, you know, just like with COVID, I think the worst thing they did for their objectives was they just pushed too hard and they pushed people too far. I think if they had it all over to do again, if they had it uh, over to do again, they would uh, they wouldn't have gone for the kids. The central planners would not have made the vaccines mandatory for children. I think that was the 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 one step too far, which made them have to completely take away all the mandates. So maybe they'll do the same thing. Maybe with central bank digital currencies, they will, you know, their power will go to their head and they'll take a step too far, which makes people realize the downside and and choose for an alternate system, which then takes away all the power they had because people are able to create more of a network and more goods and services based outside of that CBDC system and ledger. Maybe. Who knows? Okay, guys, we'll take yeah. one more question. Well, I'm going to shoot over to dinner. Did you have something to add to that? Yeah, so I just, just two two comments on that. So one is, I think, before they realize the power of the technology, they're, they're going to think that they can commandeer it, right? So that's good for us because they're going to think that they're going to play the old game and they're going to get their hands and their teeth wrapped into it and they're going to steer it the way they want. So that that's number one. I, I think of it almost like the Uber coming into the cities and by the time they realized what it was, it was just so many users, they couldn't stop it. And there'll be politicians that will realize that and will want to utilize that that voting energy that will that that basically pushes for more and more adoption. So number two is I think you're right. And 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 if you look at the course of history and, and you look at at the cycles of human endeavor basically where we're going through decentralization and centralization, there's a big difference with cryptocurrency where because it removes counterparty, the veil that the government is able to hide behind, where they're saying that they're doing it for the benefit of us, that they have to control that these intermediaries, that veil is lost in cryptocurrency. And if the day comes where what you're talking about, where they do clamp down on us, they have to reach right to the individual. They have to stop them from interacting with code, which has been sanctified due to the, the fight that the cypherpunks have put in as its speech in your U.S. Constitution, right? So I would just say that if that day comes where they do, the veil of the government as a benevolent actor will be will basically be lost. And I think a lot of people woke up uh, due to what happened in COVID and more people will, will, will wake up because now you're living in a tyranny because they're saying you can't interact with this code, you can't write this code, you can't fork this code, then you're basically not a free citizen. And I, I think people would realize that readily. And, and it, that would be the moment that maybe we put up a fight and we and we take our liberties back. So uh, I just wanted to add that point. I hope so. I hope so. I just don't think the average Joe and Jane is on that page. I just, I, I mean, this whole conversation, I think, would just, number one, bore them to death. And they just wouldn't care. It, it just, it, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, hopefully I'm wrong, 
but society at large, it, it's just, you know, they're normal people and they just care about their job, their wife, their husband, their kids, and just normal people stuff. And, it, and it, unless it impacts their life, their day to day, I don't know that we get enough of them on our side in order to push back and, 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 and make a difference. Now, again, I, I think we've got avenues to try to change opinion, but I think, and again, it sounds weird, but maybe the greatest tool that we have is the insatiable lust for power the authoritarian that central planners have from a standpoint of once they do wield this type of control, they're, they're not going to be able to turn the dial slowly <laughs> to the point where it's, it's boiling the frog at a pace that doesn't make the frog jump out of the pot. For, you know, going back to the average Joan Jane, what could they do that would start impacting their kids from a central bank digital currency? That's when I think, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's going to get there if the cent, if the average Joe just realizes they're being tracked or, or their consumption is being tracked. I don't know that they'd even care. I, I think they'd probably have the attitude. Like, oh, well, I'm not doing anything wrong, so what do I have to worry about? Nothing. And their day-to-day, you know, going to their job, nine to five, buying their coffee, going to Starbucks, paying their bills, if, if that isn't impacted significantly, then they're, they're not going to revolt. You know, it, it goes back to social unrest and trying to analyze how that's come about throughout history, and usually... It's when people can't afford to put food on the table or a roof over their head, or I would take it to the next, or where it's starting to really impact their kids. So I think that's kind of the question that I'm trying to think through out loud here and doing kind of a messy job of is how would a central bank, how would the, uh, the tyrannical impact of the central planners use of the central bank digital currency impact the average Joe and Jane's kids or something that they care about enough to push back against. I don't know. I don't know. All right, guys. So we'll do one more uh, question here. Then I'm going to shoot off to dinner. So let's see. We've got Bear Barry Long. Let's get him in up here. Barry, what are your thoughts, my friend? Well, I have many. I requested uh, there for a while from the young man that spoke earlier and. Before I get started on a few of those, George, I'll just say uh, thank you, man. Uh, what you know, watched your videos help get us all through COVID. And you know, I owned a company for twenty years. I trade every day, and so you know, square in the circle around a lot of uh, just the, the Fed and these transactions and monetary systems. And, and you've been a blessing, man. So just wanted to say I appreciate you, you very much, and see many of your stuff and. Yeah, I think this conversation is definitely stiff drink time when it, uh, it comes to <laughs> thinking about it. I mean, because, you know, the young man was up there speaking. He's, I think that's kind of your general philosophy amongst the public is I'm not doing anything illegal. It's, you know, it's fine. Who cares if they, they know what our transactions are? It's like, no. Yeah. Do you not just see what's happened the last few years? You know, that quote. There's decades that go by where nothing happens and weeks that go by where decades happen. We just went through the latter. 
And the amount of shit that's taken place, pardon me, but, you know, rather you go to the Canadian truckers, how they shut their banks down. These are Western democracies. You look at what happened in Australia, in New Zealand, or even here in the States where they shut down these businesses, big box stores could stay open, but, you know, your smaller outfits can't. The, the attempt at the, the control, whatever the emergency is, there's always going to be an emergency that's, you know, going to dictate the, the their, their powers to to respond to so you know it's 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 definitely something that's going to be a trojan horse that's rolled in uh, with a bow on it it's going to all seem great it's most likely you know something's going to break something's going to collapse this is your answer to it and this is how you get your stimulus you go down and you sign up for this or that and it'll be incrementalism it's something that's going to be you know slow rolled in and Everything will be great, and then, and then, like you said, you're already being conditioned for, you know, your your WES agendas, and you know the the, the ESG stuff, and we don't like meat. And yes, bugs are a good thing, and and all these different types of dynamics. And guys, you know, we're all here living our lives, and it, you know, it seems like forever for us, but we're a small experiment here in America with the freedoms that we have. And you're watching these be eroded. And this is the ultimate uh, control mechanism for that. You know, this is a, a de facto your mark of the beast. If you get that type of control, you can look at China and see what, you know, they were having bank runs and stuff. They were shutting these people's, uh, you know, chips off, essentially not letting them get on trains or, or various things. That's, that's not what we want here. So, you know, a couple speakers ago, he's talking about, well, you know, we can create different identities or, or this or that. Look, you know, and ounce of prevention is worth the pound of cure. We got to stop this now, somehow. I think people need to wake up and, and resist this with everything we have before this gets rolled out. Because once you, uh, they have your biometric footprint or whatever, there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of change in identities or whatever. They'll be your, your underground thing. And as this thing progresses and rolls out, you know, there's going to be bigger government measures to try and stamp that down. And it's it's just not what we want. There's nothing good about it, you know? Yeah. So on that note, how do we resist? And I think it seems crude, but they can do all the central bank digital currency stuff they want. And one thing that I've completely left out of the conversation, and this is a big mistake, is cash. In order for them to do what what we've been talking about, they have to ban cash. So it, that's, I think, where we need to draw the line in the sand because they're, they're most likely going to do the central bank digital currency thing, whether we like it or not. But if we don't allow them to ban cash, then we still have a way to opt out of the system to a certain extent without that dramatic decline in our standard of living to where we're having to live, live like a communal lifestyle, like on a farm in the middle of Utah. It's going to be the, so yeah, that's, I think what we, what... and compound. I'm going to give you a Columbiana, come down there and <laughs> figure it out. George. You know, I think it's the yeah. incrementalism that we talk about. Like, so China, they had, they had cash. You can't get in a cab. You can't buy a cup of coffee. Everything's digital. It's, it's de facto um, kind of pushed out of the system. Right, because because everything's brought onto that 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 system of control. So your underground thing. Look, I got a metric ton of 
of silver dimes and quarters because I think those, you know, they think you're crazy, but those are those are going to be the things that you can transact with um, when 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 that time comes and and whatever. I think that's it's a great thing to to get silver and gold. Yeah, I'm just saying that that's uh, collectively. I think that's where we as voters, that's where we need to put our foot down because, you know, they, they can do this, these financial shenanigans behind the scenes, changing the ledger and no one's even going to know, but everyone's going to know if they say, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to make it illegal for you to transact in cash. That's when we hit the street, you know, uh, civil disobedience and say, no, 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 that that's, you've gone too far. You've gone too far. And if you as a politician go down that path, you're not getting my vote. And then they kind of backpedal. They say, okay, well, we're going to have to have some sort of hybrid system. Another thing I'll say that, um, and I realize this isn't applicable to everybody, but if you do have the flexibility you you and you want to check out of the system for as long as possible, if the United States or the West goes this direction, you may consider going to a country where the percentage of cash usage is incredibly high such as colombia so colombia's got a lot of things a lot of problems trust me but they could implement a central bank digital currency here but banning cash would be next to impossible it would be next to impossible because i mean half the country doesn't even have a bank account and even when you're in the the rich areas you're still easily transacting in cash everywhere. So that may be a way to try to maintain your lifestyle um, for people who have the resources and the flexibility to do so, assuming the West goes this direction of a CBDC. In addition, and if you have to stay in the West, make sure that you're putting your foot down when they start talking about banning cash. Yeah, I love I love the way you you think about this stuff and that your solution oriented. You're much more diplomatic, responding to a few of those things. I tend to get a little more excited, but you're um, you know, you, you have a good point. I think that does it come to a vote or is it going to be something that's ushered in via some sort of crisis or emergency? I think that's what you know. I question a, b, uh, you know, to your point of what can you do about it? I think look, guys, you know have a little mattress money, have a little gold, have a little silver, stuff like that. It's insurance. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that the, the it's clear at this point, this isn't some sort of conspiracy speculation. They're, they're, they're on their way to rolling this out at some point. When is the question? But, you know, I, I think that it is coming. So, you know, the awareness of it, A, and then B, you know, your circle of influence is who's around you. I mean, you know, like you said, everybody's got, you know, an average of 2.5 kids working a 40-hour week. They come in and they turn on 10 minutes of CNN. They think they know what's going on. And that's the existence as far as, as this kind of stuff. There's just, you know, rather it's intentional apathy or it's just, um, you know, uninformed. And, and we're all drinking data through a fire hose and watching TikTok videos. And, not, and I don't think there's maybe 5% are aware of, of really kind of what's going on with these agendas and the world economic forum and, and what's really going down and, and, and what's being foisted upon us here. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's, there's a, an angle of, of just, you know, psyops propaganda of division within this country, you know, keeping us distracted, fighting on social issues and, and various things so that it's obfuscated 
what's going on. It's it's gross, man. It's been a crazy few years, and and uh, you know, I've watched enough of your stuff. You never from Adam, but I I kind of get an idea how you think about this. I, I definitely appreciate you uh, hosting a space on it, and I, I would love to see uh, some more of them for sure. So thanks for the uh, opportunity to speak, George. Be well. well. Yeah, no problem. And I think you just highlight the importance moving forward of having a strong community, a network of friends and family who are like-minded, and then just having that tribe. That's one thing that I talk to Kiyosaki about all the time, just having that tribe, having that network of people that you can depend on. Kiyosaki, as most of you know, is a Marine at heart. And, uh, you know, one of the terms he always uses with me that um, I I value tremendously is Semper Fi. And it's always faithful, always loyal. And so to have, you know, that's the network that you need to start building right now to have the best chance of getting through this unscathed. And whether that's an online community or even better, in, in real life, having those like-minded individuals that value freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, you know, setting up a plan, having them around you, those people you can trust that have your back. And I think that's the way that uh, all of us will have the greatest chance of getting through this. That's for sure. All right, guys, on that note, we'll go ahead and end it. I appreciate everyone being on the Twitter space and uh, I'll let you know when we do the next one and just stay tuned because I'm most likely going to do a whiteboard video on this topic. So if you want to check that out to get a visual representation of what we've been talking about, uh, you can just find that on the George Gammon channel. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks again, George. Enjoy your dinner. Look forward to talking to you. Thank you.